Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. everybody welcome to this episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how you feeling in a word frantic (laughs) (laughs) i mean last week you needed time you had things happening at the last minute we were supposed to record at seven or something and then we recorded at like 9 30 well same for today (laughs) It yeah. started it started with I always tell you like I'm good to go at eight. And yeah. today you were like, What time do you want to do? I was like, ah, how about nine? And then I was like, nine fifteen? And then at like nine ten, I was like, you know what? Five, ten minutes. Well, it was like nine forty by the time I rolled around. Just just a last minute on the notes. I I'm learning that I'm basically doing like twenty to thirty page essays every week. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, uh, that and is exactly edi- what it is. And yes. editing them and, you know, mentally grading them myself. So it's just, if I had all the information already mm-hmm. and I could spend the week doing the essay, I'd be golden. But I yeah. got to research and do this. Plus, I had to take a small break in there from researching and everything because we guessed it on... Uh, Australian true crime. That's right. Yes, we were the guests on on their uh, episode. It dropped today, uh, today being Mother's Day, May 9th. So uh, check that out. Australian true crime, an awesome true crime podcast hosted by two ladies. Uh, and it was a joy. It was so fun to get to talk to people with very shared interests to ours. And yeah. they're Australians. We're Canadians. There's obviously some uh, crossover because it's uh, Commonwealth countries. So check that out for sure. Shout out to uh, Emily and Michelle. Yeah, shout out. I love that. I love that. I love, listen, bringing people together, 
is one of my favorite things in the world, and and bringing yeah. new people to us is also very exciting for me. I love it. Yeah. Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver, and the old are gold. Is that? Is that <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna love this. Is is that a is that a psalm? I don't know that it is a psalm, but as you know, I've talked about how I've dabbled in religion, especially as a child. It really was yeah. very, uh, it was very, um, it spoke to me. Uh, yeah, it, w- yeah, we probably did sing that in in Bible studies or something, but but yeah, that was just a song that resonated with me always. Make new friends to keep there, our old. The new are silver, the old are gold. Those are the lyrics. Wasn't there like a a punk band or an alternative band or something that sang the. I love, I, they're not punk at all. I don't know why punk came to mind. Eve Six, who I love. Love. They uh, they have a song and in the, the lyrics, it's like, it says something about keep new friends, make new friends, but keep the old. There you go. Yeah. So. Eve Six, also an X-Files reference. No shit. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. You know what? You know what's not nice? What? When you get a graduation gift mm. of tickets to Edgefest, and I know Edgefest means nothing to most people, but it was like a countrywide tour of uh, just a big concert. Yeah. And it had all these bands that I love. Silverchair was there, Moist, Treble Charger, Big Wreck, all of these. I was very excited to be there. Yeah. One of the main reasons I wanted to go, Eve Six, at the last minute, they got pulled because one of uh, the lead singer max don't act like you don't know his name christy um (laughs) (laughs) i'm usually into drummer energy but there's nope i can't get distracted so early he had uh had a bit of a problem nodes on his vocal cords so Uh. he had to pull out and no worries folks they were replaced by the teen sensation serial joe oh wow that's a yeah and a bummer I'll tell you that and a bummer I was disappointed I wanted to see Eve Six so bad but I have lived out that fantasy they played in Edmonton and I got to go to the show it was a bit raining but I was like it's fine they opened for Everclear and uh, Soul Asylum and so it was just like a three hour I was freezing cold. I was I had a, like a rain poncho on over top of my hoodie because it was raining. And then Art from Everclear came and was like shaking our hand after and I was like having a fit and f- losing my mind. And he looked me in the eye and went, "Oh, look at you in your poncho." <laughs> it's the, the cutest thing I think a human's ever said to me. And that is cute. I love yeah. that for you. Yeah, I, you know I love him, and I'm already half a drink in, because here's the thing, I usually do two drinks. I bring two in, I do one for in the first half, one in the second. I've already told myself, you get both of these, get a second one, or get a third one for the second half, because today, it's been a day. Wow, well you've, yeah. you've segued yourself into my first question, and the, the question on everybody's mind, what you drinking over there? Uh, I decided... Because I was such a fan, I went to the liquor store and bought multiple six-packs of the Palm Bay Rainbow Twist. Holy S-word. It's so good. I was so excited to find it. 
because it's new and so a lot of places don't have it yet but I, I did find it and I just kept loading them into my arms <laughs> and I was like this looks insane but I understand it mm-hmm. and uh, it feels right because I put a few in the fridge for us to just like snack on throughout the week and then tonight I was like I need I need two oh, I'll come back for the third yeah I don't need three I'm probably gonna have four now, now you see you're talking my language for sure. Well, listen, yeah. there's some exciting news in the Ash household, and that is something that, listen, ladies and gentlemen and people of all kinds, your tweets, your tags to Cutwater have paid off because they've sent me a package. That's right. Cutwater oh. has come through. They sent me a package. It has, of course, my favorite, the tequila margarita. Yeah. It had some white Russians in there. Oh, If I want to feel like the dude, that's going to be exciting. Vodka mules. And then they had some two things I'm very excited about. One, the mango margarita. And finally, what I am going to be drinking here tonight, the peach margarita. Okay. It says to lightly shake because Ooh. I love that you'll love this. It says, with a flavorful burst of freshly cut peaches in every sip, this marg is not messing around. I just like the vibe of Cutwater. <laughs> and look, I understand that they still are not officially a sponsor. They haven't given me money to say these things. I want to make that yeah. clear. This is just how passionate I am about the product. But here we go. Okay. I'm oh. going to do my first sip here on the air. Oh, Let's I, see. I like it. Wow. Oh, my God. It's... I am going to say something controversial that people are not going to believe. I think I like it even more than the lime. (gasps) It's really, really good. What's happening? Like you in the last month, you've tried a different flavor of a company you like and you might like it more. I might like the rainbow more of Palm Bay. So if we can just get Cutwater to sponsor for uh, America, yeah, and then Palm Bay to sponsor for Canada. And Either way, we're still shouting about you. We're <laughs> shouting about them whether they whether they care to pay for it or not, and that's maybe yeah. our own misstep. But the point is, is we're passionate about the products. They're yeah. delicious, and I do have to shout them out and say thank you because they did send me a nice care package, and this is next level good. You know what it is, is that it really does taste like it does taste like real peach. It doesn't taste like peach oh. flavor. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, it does definitely taste like wowzer. And this is still 10%. I know that the other one is 12.5%, but I don't need that extra 2.5%. <laughs> this feels slightly more responsible. Not at all. You know how this gets anyway. It all blurs around drink three. But anyway, cheers, <laughs> bottoms up. Uh, you say you don't need 12%. You know what you do need? Peach. I could eat a peach for hours. I could eat, I could eat a peach for hours. <laughs> oh, face off. <sighs> How I love thee. What a when's gem. The, when's the last time? You've watched that recently, yeah? Oh, yeah. Within yeah. the last year, because we did a lot of uh, 80s and 90s movies early on in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. When we didn't know it was going to last a year and a half. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I would still gladly be watching them if I had the time. Yeah. I have loved that movie for decades now i there's something about it i love it was it came out around the time that i was like john travolta okay now i understand no thanks but it was like peak cage didn't you also go through a nicholas cage phase oh yeah are you still (laughs) (laughs) 
have to know. ask I'm, I have I'm, to ask the hard questions. I I am weirdly drawn to his bizarre energy. Uh not in that way. Like I think like I think we could go for drinks and have a great time, yeah. but as friends. Sure. Whereas if Jack Black wants to go for drinks, I'm interested. Stop it. I I am going too far already. Listen, I just Blanche's, I saw a video of Jack Black and that's where I'm at. Blanche has got a Blanche. Yeah. She's here early, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Welcome her to the show. Give her a round of applause in your homes, in your cars, in your tubs, wherever you're listening right now. Uh, we're always glad to see her on True Crime and Cocktails. Listen, of course, today's episode, we're going to be talking about Natalie Holloway. Now, this was, of course, the uh, April Patreon pick, uh, Patreon poll pick episode. Now, if you're wondering, what was that alliteration all about? Patreon.com is a subscription-based service where podcasts, amongst other things, artists of all kinds, offer uh, different things to people and they can sign up for them. So we offer bonus episodes. We do live Q&As once a month. And one of the benefits that we offer on our Patreon is you get to vote in a poll once a month to choose one episode a month of the podcast. Uh, so if you're interested at all, go to patreon.com slash cocktails to learn more about signing up for that. And you can help choose uh, one of the future Patreon poll pick episodes. But Natalie Holloway, of course, this is a very famous case, as we all know. If you're into true crime, you've probably heard of it. If you haven't, do not worry. Christy will fill you in on everything you need to know. But of course, this is talking about Natalie, who was very young at the time. This was on a, a high school grad trip uh, to Aruba, I believe, correct? Absolutely. So before we started recording, we were talking about, now Christy and I both, this is something that we have in common, and, and we're going to have to say this and then give a pause so that everyone listening can have their reaction, but you and I have both never left the continent of North America. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been, where's, uh, I, I was, I've been to Cuba, that's North America still, I believe. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, is, is there is there there might be argument that it's Central America? Is that what it is? I I honestly don't listen, know. It's not. I didn't fly the plane. It is, uh, listen, it's not. You don't have to know. You don't have to know. Yeah, and I've South been to America, I, uh, I've been to Saint Lucia, right? And that's and, it. I'm very fortunate to have gone to either. But I'm just oh, saying, listen, but no, yeah, other than just, that, people react yeah. very strongly when I say that as a woman who is in her mid to upper 30s. Oh, say prime. Prime. Thank you very much that I've never been to, say, I don't know, Europe or uh, oh, I don't know, I know, Australia or I don't know, anywhere. People like to have a large reaction to that, which I get. Yeah. I get. But what it is for yeah. me is that. Is that it's every time I've ever tried to book a trip, I book work. It's it's just a, again, if you're ever in a slump as an actor, book a vacation because guess what, you're going to get a job offer like that. So, uh, but we were talking about this, and so I asked Christy, I was like, wait a minute, your your first time leaving, you know, Canada, I believe, was to go on a beach vacation of sorts, correct, to Cuba? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And- I mean, I've been into the states. Of a course, bit. of course. But anytime I've like flown somewhere major, uh, it was Cuba because friends of my boyfriend at the time, spoiler alert, now husband, yes, were getting married there, and it was like, hey, who wants to come for this? Like, I don't, I don't think it was a full two weeks, but I think it was like ten day or something trip to Cuba. We'll all hang out a few days in. They get married. Then we all hang out for the first part of their honeymoon, which I found interesting. And then uh, we fly home. 
And so how long into the relationship with your husband were you at that time? I feel um, like you were you were fairly you were it was it new-ish? Oh, it was early because yeah. we didn't even we didn't even live together yet. I think it was like I'm gonna say like seven, eight months maybe. So not, you know, not crazy early, but it was still, you know, you're in the, the early stages. And this was his yeah. friends, obviously. And a wedding. Yeah. And so, yeah. so tell us a little bit about, you know, was there anything that happened at that wedding that was, I don't know, memorable in regards to you? <laughs> I mean, looking back, I do realize once you, once you, when you take a woman, especially a, a drunk one, sure. to a wedding... When when she's like in her mid to late 20s and starts foolishly believing that TikTok time is running out, it's not, people. It's not. It's not. You, you, have you were a baby. So much time child. ahead of you. Mm-hmm. You start to be like, oh, well, would we get married? And like all of that nonsense. Oh, God, I love that. Now I'm think. now I'm rethinking it and wondering if we'd been together a year already. You know what? It doesn't matter. So we went to the wedding. We had drinks it was a great time. My favorite thing, uh, two things, I guess. One, when we arrived, our room wasn't ready yet. So they felt bad. And so the resort was like, you know what? You can you get the honeymoon suite. So we got the honeymoon suite before <laughs> the bride and groom. Oh, my God. That's so we, hilarious. Uh, we laughed a lot and did make the joke of like, don't worry, we've christened it for you. Because we thought that was funny. I don't know if they thought that was funny but they gave us like a bottle of rum and we're like here's the honeymoon suite and we're like okay thanks and then we had the wedding it was lovely on a beach (laughs) a lot of drinks a lot of hot hot sun and then someone goes around with a video camera and is like you know what I want to take this lovely video I want to I want to video all these messages that you might have for the bride and groom nice and they shoved a camera in my face and I was not ready for that and so they asked me if I had anything to say and just with the most serious face I could think of I just went oh you know I believe that children are the future (laughs) (laughs) teach them well and let them lead the way and I just kept going like and show them all the beauty they possess inside like <laughs> i think that's hysterical i would love if someone put that on my wedding video oh well there's more in that there's more of that in me where that came from <laughs> it's just it was i was i was drinking i was i'm going to say i was younger not sure i was like late 20s Uh, But I was drinking. It was a time. And, you know, it is what it is. I think it's hilarious. I think it's (laughs) charming. I think it's funny. And if and I think that that should have won them over. You know what I mean? Uh, I never heard back. So (laughs) not that I not that I expect them to still waiting to contact people and be like, hey, I saw your clip in the video. Want to talk about it? Yeah. I don't even know if they saw the video. I envision the guy with the camera just shut it off and was like, wow, okay, I get it. This is a joke. I'm going to finish it. And then just threw the tape into the sea. I don't know. (laughs) I love it. I love it. 
Uh, listen, well, my first foray out of both Canada or America was to the Bahamas with Oof. one of my other uh, best friends, uh, Rika, a uh, friend of the podcast. And she and I, we were calling it our honeymoon at the time. And the whole trip Amazing. was predicated around me, my dream of swimming with dolphins. Now, I want to let any animal activists out there know this was before we knew that it was a questionable practice, okay? This was, I was very young at this time. I think I was like, I want to say maybe 21. So give a gal a break. Again, I, I would make different decisions now. But I will also say it was a magical experience. Uh, it seemed like a decent enough situation. I get it. I'm not defending it. But anyway, so we had, part of the truth is, is that we were terrified about leaving the resort because of the Natalie Holloway case. We had, it's, it's, of course, I think it rocked any young women in our kind of age category. But in order to go to do this excursion, we did have to leave the resort, which we hadn't really mm-hmm. been doing. And, and so we did, and, and we left, and we went, and we did this excursion, and we had a great time. And then on our way back to the resort... We're in this bus, and the bus was kind of servicing all of the resorts that were kind of like on this one side of the island. And I'll never forget, we were driving, and I was like, Rika, I, I think that that's, I think that's our hotel, as we were passing by it. And she was like, no, 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 I, I think they just all look alike. And then I was like, no, I, I think that was our hotel. And so she goes to the front of the bus and says to the driver, excuse me, sir, is that the whatever the name of the hotel was. And he was like, yeah. And she's like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Like we were, that was our hotel. We were supposed to get off there. And he's like, well, we don't turn the bus around. And she was like, well, what do we do? And he's like, well, we can, we can drop you off at the end of the route. And she was like, okay. He's like, but it takes four hours. (laughs) And we were Uh. like, what do you mean? And so then he goes, so then he literally stopped the bus. I am not kidding you. We're in like downtown Nassau he stopped the bus, opened the door, threw a handful of Bahamian money at us, hailed a cab, and went, he'll take you. And so now we're all of a sudden in the middle of a street, in the middle of like a bustling, again, Bahamian street. Uh, we got into this cab and we said, take us to this hotel. And and literally just like, like, like a mitt full of crumpled money, handed it to the driver. And now listen, again, bless it. He took us back and everything was fine, but we were terrified that whole ride because, I mean, again, I'm, I would have to, I, oh, well, I'm looking at the date now because you have it written down. This was around the exact same time that this had happened. I actually think it was shortly after this had happened that, that this, was, this trip had been, had been going mm-hmm. on. So point being anyway is that we were very much on high alert. Uh, we were being hypervigilant and it was a, uh, you know, very terrifying situation. I'm sure we were in no actual real danger. We had an amazing time. All of our experiences with everybody from the Bahamas were amazing. Everyone was lovely to us. It was, it was a, a beautiful thing. But of course, uh, when you're traveling, yeah, because I think it was actually July 2005 we took that trip, and I'm reading now that, that Natalie, um, the, that all went down in May. So, uh, <laughs> again, I think people can understand how when you're within 60 days of a international news mm-hmm. you know, situation that people would probably be on edge, which we were. But, uh, you know, thank God. I mean, again, it's it's wild to think about. I always keep the list of all the times in life that I feel like I'm a bit of a cat, 
that I've had nine lives, that it was like, there was some things that happened that it's like, you're, you got out of there by the skin of your teeth and, and thank God for it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you do also have a tendency to just knock glasses off of tables. <laughs> <laughs> I nope. do. I nope. do. Absolutely. Now, now she's turning, now she's gone from a Blanche to a dad. So <laughs> Listen, I'm always here for a dad joke, and I think I know well enough that uh, our listeners are as well. So uh, on that note, let's get into it. All right. As I said, we're talking about Natalie Holloway. And just to refresh all of you who maybe don't have this in the front of your mind, in May 2005, 18-year-old Natalie Holloway flies to Aruba on a high school graduation trip. On May 30th, Natalie is last seen leaving a nightclub with three local men, one of which is the son of a judge. Despite a massive search, Natalie's remains have never been found. So what happened to Natalie? Did she put her trust in the wrong people? Was she the victim of a terrible accident? And why did the police believe that she wasn't truly missing at all? I will never get enough. It's always good. It's always good. I will never get enough. Oh, look, I give the, there's a a bigger word and I, I can't think of what that is because my brain is empty uh uh, because i was (laughs) i was researching this up and like just organizing my notes to the very last possible second (laughs) i warn you these might not be as organized as i thought they were in my frantic stage so i think we're all here for it we're all here for a journey we're all here for it yeah we're all here for a journey so oh heaven help us So I've also added in some weirdly named side notes and I'm both saying you're welcome and I'm sorry. This is like the staircase. I got so excited about your side notes. (laughs) Historical fun fact. Remember? Well, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, Christy from quarantine is still here. So, you know, what's interesting. Yeah, I haven't left the basement. Yeah, what's funny is is for those uh, for those of you listening, there has been a few times we've been texting recently, and and she said a few things, and she was like, "I still feel like I'm that person," and then it's like, "Is she forever changed?" And the answer is, <laughs> only time will tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been out of the basement now longer than I was in the basement, and she's still there. She's still there. I mean, every once in a while I go downstairs to like do laundry and my heart just goes (gasps) like at the thought of like going downstairs. It wasn't that traumatic. It was fine. I had a safe, comfortable place to live. I was doted on. I should let it go. The point is mentally a cage. (laughs) It's a very, very, very light, very low level trauma. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing that uh, what I've brought out of it is weirdly named side notes. I like it. Well, so, I look forward to them. So buck, buckle up, folks. Here we I grow. tried to bring as much info as I can. We're all going to take a journey. Let's do it. So David Edward Holloway and Elizabeth Ann Reynolds were college sweethearts. David, better known as Dave, was an insurance agent. And Elizabeth, known as Beth, was a speech pathologist. After graduating from the University of Arkansas, Dave and Beth got married in the early 80s and gave birth to Natalie Ann Holloway on October 21st, 1986. The couple also had a son named Matthew in 1988. 
Unfortunately, things didn't work out for Dave and Beth, and the pair divorced in 1993 when Natalie was seven and Matthew was five. The custody battle was described as messy and protracted. Beth won sole custody, although Dave did see the children on weekends and for longer stretches in the summer. In 2000, Beth would marry George Twitty, better known as Jug. Weird nickname side note. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know why his nickname is Jug, but I did learn that Jug has a brother named Tom Twitty, whose nickname is Jar. <laughs> huh. <laughs> That's your very first and hopefully not last weird nickname side note. <laughs> I like it. Dave Holloway married Robin Patron in 1995. They had Caitlin in 1998 and Brooke in 2003. I had no idea that there were other children. Finding out about their births was very difficult and I probably overstepped a bit <laughs> to find out, but all legally. Yes, of course, always. If he mentions it in his book, it's open. Of course. Natalie was described as respectful, sensitive, loving, and a model child. She was active at school as a member of the Math and Spanish Honor Societies and part of the Bible Club and the Dorians, which is the school dance team. Natalie is remembered for her great love of The Wizard of Oz and Leonard Skinnerd. Natalie was smart, hardworking, and had earned a full scholarship to the University of Alabama, where she planned to study pre-med. On May 24, 2005, Natalie's family gathered in Mountain Brook, Alabama, a suburb of Birmingham, to attend Natalie's graduation from Mountain Brook High School. At the time of her grad, Natalie was 18, her brother was 16, and her sisters were 7 and 2. Natalie also had step-siblings from her mother's new marriage, 24-year-old Megan and 20-year-old George Jr. This is the only time they ever come up, but again, I like to show off a little. <laughs> again, she's, she came out a new woman. I love it. I'm here for it. We all love it. I'm every woman. <laughs> no, no, so sorry. I, oh, wow, this is awesome. This is awesome. Uh, it's awesome that, you know, 20 minutes in, we already have an edit. <laughs> no. No, we don't uh, edit those things out. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, a few months before, back in February 2005, Natalie asked her father, Dave, for permission to go on a class trip to Aruba. Dave admits he was apprehensive at first, and he tried to talk her out of it. Beth, however, was less hesitant, as she had felt the graduation trip was a tradition at the high school, and Jug's son, George Jr., had been on that same trip years before. But let's talk about why a parent might be hesitant about a trip like this. For one thing, Aruba is 1,793 miles, that's 2,885 kilometers, Thank you. away. Imagine if this is your teen's first time away from home. And they are now more than a thousand miles away? Uneasy at best. Secondly, the trip was about $985, which is a lot of money. Thirdly, the legal drinking age in Aruba is 18. Legal drinking age in Alabama is 21. So these kids are not only potentially away from their parents for the first time in their lives, but also legally allowed to get fully messed up 
And I'm not going to be naive enough and say it was their first time drinking, but I bet it was the first for some, not to mention the first time they'd be able to get full sloppy for days without parents freaking out. Quick question. Yeah. So is this a trip that like teachers are going on? Like are there chaperones or is this just... Uh, There are. We're going to get to the chaperones. But yes, great question. There are chaperones. All right. According to one of the trip chaperones, about five or six students were not 18 yet. However, it should be noted that according to a website that promotes Aruba, legal drinking age is, quote, not wildly enforced. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. So Beth was adamant that Natalie never drank. We, of course, don't know if that's accurate or not, but if it is true, it would be worrisome as witnesses on the trip said that Natalie was quite drunk for most of it, although one of the chaperones claims that this was not true. According to police commissioner, and I'm going to say a lot of names here and I'm going to F them up pretty hard unintentionally, and we're just going to have to accept that. Of course. Gerald Dompig. Uh, The trip was, quote, wild partying, a lot of drinking, lots of room switching every night. We know the Holiday Inn told them they weren't welcome next year. Natalie, (laughs) we know, she drank all day, every day. We have statements started early every morning with cocktails. So much drinking that Natalie didn't show up for two mornings of breakfast. I also want to take this moment to say I am in no way blaming Natalie for anything. I'm just stating it's possible she wasn't used to alcohol, certainly not in the capacity with which it was offered to these kids during this trip. But again, I'm not blaming Natalie. I'm not blaming the alcohol. Could alcohol have played a factor in this? Maybe. But note, I am not victim shaming. Whether Natalie was drunk or not, she didn't deserve whatever happened to her. Of course. We will get into that in a moment. So I couldn't find out exactly how many kids actually graduated from this school, Uh, But during the 2004-2005 school year, Mountain Brook High School had 992 students in grades 10 to 12. So it's probably safe to assume that the graduating class was at least like 300 or so. Mm -hmm. Clearly not everyone went on the trip. But my biggest issue with this trip is it consisted of 124 teenagers and seven chaperones. Oh, boy. You heard me correctly. That's seven adults to keep an eye on 124 teenagers, which works out to nearly 18 teenagers per adult in a foreign country where the teenagers are allowed to uh, drink legally. Jody Behrman, a mother of a graduate and the travel agent who helped organize the trip, said that, quote, The chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move, which is funny because I thought that was the literal definition (laughs) of a chaperone. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, boy. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Jody said the students were told to be careful and to not stray from the group. The chaperones had scheduled daily meetings where the students were supposed to check in. From an interview I found with one of the chaperones, they stated uh, they met with the students earlier in the day, then again in the afternoon or evening at dinner. That's that's it. Now, as a mother. Thank you very much. 
I don't feel comfortable at all with the idea of my teenager being in a foreign country and no one checking in to verify that they've returned to a hotel at night. Maybe a curfew isn't fun on a trip like that, but to tell me, like, to tell kids they have to be back by, like, 1 or 2 a.m. feels kind of reasonable to me, especially when most of the bars, they're closed by 1, so there's really nowhere else for them to go anyway. Uh, and if the chaperones don't want to stay up late to do these checks, don't volunteer to chaperone. Yeah. Yeah. I know this is a yearly trip, and this was only one incident that they had, but I'm a believer in even once was too many. Oh, and it what an incident. Like, yes. Good agreed. lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, our dear friend Jody uh, also said, quote, hopefully the good thing that can come out of this story is that a student will think, well... Something bad could happen to me. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, Jodes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Chaperone side note. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost my mind. I love it. Uh, apparently, this Jody was supposed to be a chaperone herself, as her daughter had also just graduated, but they had to cancel at the last minute when her daughter came down with appendicitis but that would be eight chaperones for 125 kids. And that's nearly a 16 teens per adult. Who were these seven chaperones? Four male teachers from Mountain Brook High School and three of their wives. And that just sounds like a couple's vacation to me. Yeah, wow. I mean, I remember I went on a band. I joined the band in high school because there was going to be a trip to Florida specifically to go to Disney World. And um, I'm not ashamed. Anyway, I played bass guitar for people who are wondering at home. Anyway, we drove in a bus. We drove in a bus from Belleville, Ontario, Canada to Orlando, Florida. It is a 26-hour ride. We did it straight. It was miserable but I think there was probably maybe 30 or 40 of us and I I want to say we had at least I feel like we had eight or ten chaperones for for 30 or 40 of us and we certainly had curfews and we certainly I mean we also weren't of drinking age so there's that difference too but yeah that's that those are some interesting details I never knew before that's uh that's that's painting a picture for sure wow now I mean who what couple wouldn't want to go to Aruba? You know, we got crystal clear waters, sandy beaches, beautiful palm trees, and endless tequila. Aruba is a Caribbean, some say Caribbean. I'm going to probably go back and forth, not that I mean to. We're going to get um, letters either way. Yeah, 100%. It's a Caribbean. I already forget which way I went before. Caribbean, uh, Caribbean. There we go. Uh, island located approximately 15 miles 24 kilometers off the coast of Venezuela. Aruba is on the smaller side as it measures about 20 miles, 32 kilometers long, and 6 miles, 10 kilometers wide. So we're talking like 69 square miles or 180 square kilometers. In 2005, the Aruban population was about 100,000, keeping in mind that the population of Mountain Brook at the same time was just under 21,000. Aruba, oh, heaven help me, is a constituent country of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Basically, this means Aruba is a country which makes up part of a larger country or federation. This is something to keep note later. Got it. 
The Kingdom of the Netherlands is made up of four constituent countries, including Netherlands proper, Aruba, St. Martin, and I wish I'd Googled how to say this. Is it Caraco? Curacao? Curacao, I believe. It is. So it's like the booze. I, I think so. Okay. Well, a letters either way. <laughs> We're going to get letters either way. Well, historical side note. Ooh. <laughs> That's three early. Jeez. Uh, before 1975, Suriname was part of the Kingdom of Netherlands. Mm. Huh. That will not be the last time that country comes up in my notes. And Isn't I think weird? that's the first time I've heard that country's name said possibly ever. <laughs> well, that's what you get with a historical side note. Ba-da-da-do! Yeah, I need a soundboard, I yeah. think. Yeah. So I can just push a sound and like you just hear like, dun, dun, dun. Oh. Historical side note. Oh, I you know? like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would label them. It, oh, God. Then I can get out my labeler. What a dream. Mm. Uh, the class of 2005 left for Aruba on May 26th, two days after their commencement ceremony. They were booked in at the Holiday Inn Sunspree Resort and set to leave on May 30th. On the night of May 29th, the group was celebrating their final night on the island with a visit to the Excelsior Casino, which is attached to the Holiday Inn. At the casino, Natalie met a 17-year-old Dutch national named Joran Joran Vandersloo. Again, I'm going to butcher them all, and I don't mean to. Mm -hmm. Oh, that one I kind of meant to, but we'll see why. Oh, yeah. At some point in the evening, Natalie and her friends moved on to a nightclub named Carlos and Charlie's in Oranjestad, which is the capital of Aruba. Around 1.30, Natalie was seen getting into a silver Honda Civic with Joran and two other men. Oh, good Lord, Christy. Geographical side note. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> I've lost my mind. I'll try and get better. Uh, Carlos and Charlie's is about 16 miles from the hotel. That's okay. 26 kilometers. We're looking at like a 35-minute trip to get Ooh. there. From my understanding, the negative publicity from the Holloway case caused Carlos and Charlie's to shut down less than two years after Natalie disappeared. The building was torn down and rebuilt into a Senior Frogs in early 2008. And now, while I have never been to this particular nightclub myself, I've read a few stories online from people who have been there because I was curious what it was like. So now we're going to learn. Again, it's a journey. One person called it a legendary watering hole where, quote, the conga line is continuous and patrons are urged to down 28-ounce drinks and chase them with shots of tequila. It's a fun place for tourists in search of a few hours of frenzied drinking and dancing, but hardly one that ought to be on the itinerary of a chaperoned high school senior trip. Another person said, quote, the island is among the safest in the Caribbean, but that doesn't mean tourists who go there should throw caution to the wind. The bar is great entertainment for adults who are comfortable with loud music, free-flowing liquor, and sexually suggestive behavior. I've read that the uh, staff is quite handsy. Oh, okay. Mm. Someone said, quote, a siren blares and whistle-blowing waiters race in to the hectic beat of the Mexican hat dance. It's time for the hourly tequila attack at Carlos and Charlie's. One person visited after 2005 and said the club had menus that looked like a fake newspaper. One page it lists many good reasons to round out your day with a meal and a couple of drinks at Carlos and Charlie's. One, 
you're already here. Two, if you go someplace else, they might not let you in. Three, you can dance on the tables. And my favorite, four, your daughter could be here. Yeah. Okay. Interesting yep. marketing choices, Carlos and Charlie's trying to turn into the swerve a little bit. I don't know. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Holloway case is the entire reason they shut down. Yeah, got uh, it. Or the, the entire reason they had bad publicity. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So I think we now kind of get an idea as to the atmosphere of the yes. club. Uh, and just remember, these kids were 18, and while they may have had drinks before, it certainly wasn't available to them 24 hours a day for five days straight. So Natalie is seen leaving this nightclub with three men. The next morning, on May 30th, Natalie did not get on the bus that was scheduled to take her to the airport. When she hadn't arrived at 9 a.m., two of her friends, Catherine Watley and Holly Brown, packed Natalie's bag. Room assignment, side note. (laughs) Catherine Watley, known for some reason as Madison, was Natalie's roommate, along with Ruth McVeigh and Lee Broughton. Holly Brown stayed in a neighboring room. Again, just showing off. I love it. I'm here for it. (laughs) One chaperone, teacher and golf coach Bob Plummer, was in the hotel parking lot, doing a final headcount and passport check with the students on the first bus. Natalie was meant to be in the second group of students heading to the airport. Some of the students alerted Bob to Natalie's disappearance, so he went to Natalie's assigned room, that would be room number 7114, uh, and said it was empty except for a purple duffel bag. He found Natalie's passport and a few dollars in one of the pockets of her luggage, And like most of the kids on the trip, Natalie's phone didn't have an international calling plan, so she left it in her room the entire trip. Not wanting to leave Natalie's belongings unattended, Bob brought the bag to the lobby. So now we know it's at the lobby because everyone's thinking she's going to show up late. She can grab her bag and we'll just get on the bus. So one of the group of students uh, was meant to fly out at 1 p.m. The second group flew out at 3 p.m. The chaperones called Jody Behrman, who was back in Alabama, and had her contact Natalie's mother, Beth. Beth immediately grabbed a group of friends, and they headed to Aruba on a private jet. I'm not judging. I'm just stating facts. (laughs) Natalie's brother, Matthew, called their father, Dave, to let him know that Natalie was missing. So Dave books a flight to Aruba. Then Matthew calls Dave hours later to say someone from Delta Airlines told them that a female called and rebooked Natalie's flight for the next day. So Dave was relieved until he realized Natalie didn't get on that flight either. It turns out a chaperone from Natalie's group changed the flight in hopes that Natalie would just reappear late. So Dave got on a flight to Aruba June 1st. So Natalie's family were convinced right away that she was missing, but the Aruban police weren't so quick to be concerned. The police initially said there was no evidence Natalie was abducted, and the police commissioner at the time, Jan van der Straten, said she wasn't considered missing for 48 hours, and then told a journalist who asked about Natalie, quote, go to ladies' night at Carlos and Charlie's. She'll probably show up there. During a press conference... That very same police commissioner uh, was asked by a Dutch journalist if he had any hopes for a positive outcome. He said, quote, you always hoped, you always have to be hopeful. 
but I don't believe anymore that we'll find Natalie alive. When the journalist asked why, he said, because I know the details of the investigation and you don't. Jesus! <laughs> what a, what a, how the pendulum swings! Yeah, keeping in mind this was a press conference June 11th. She'd been missing like 12 days. And he was like, no. Whereas the first day she was missing, he was like, she's just drunk somewhere. So, I mean, mm, yeah. Wow. So, Officer Dompig suggested that Natalie, quote, might have died of alcohol poisoning or a drug overdose and washed out to sea or climbed aboard one of the dozens of catamarans or cabin cruisers for late night partying after a nearby concert. Okay. Then we have another officer, Dennis Jacobs, said, quote, This happens all the time. Just go down to Carlos and Charlie's and have a beer. She'll show up sometime. She probably got drunk or fell in love and ran off with someone for a few days. So the police didn't seem to take things too seriously right away. They also didn't look into surveillance tapes at any of the gas stations in the area until three weeks into the investigation. And it should be noted most cameras are set to tape over old footage after about two weeks. But if the police weren't interested immediately, you know who was? The media. And here's where Christie's going to get fired up. Can't wait. And I cannot have, wait. I've realized I've built this now, so it's like I'm gonna hit a peak and then I'm just gonna have to drop off to get back to, to regular show. So Natalie was last seen on a Sunday night. By Friday, the first American cable news crew, specifically MSNBC and the show A Current Affair, arrived on the island. Over the summer, Fox News correspondent Greta von Susteren uh, practically moved her entire show to Aruba. Her ratings jumped nearly 60% as she followed Natalie's story. And Rita Cosby at MSNBC hit number one in the ratings by covering the case. The media coverage on Natalie's case also introduced the public to former prosecutor Nancy Grace. Oh, yeah. So this is what brought Nancy Grace to the world is what you're telling me. Yeah, it is. At the time of Natalie's disappearance, the war in Iraq was ongoing, but that coverage got pushed aside for stories about the Holloway case. So why did Natalie's case get so much attention? Well, some have argued it has something to do with missing white woman syndrome, a term used to describe the media's disproportionate focus on upper middle class white women who disappear compared to coverage of missing women of color, women of lower social classes, and missing men and boys. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. she's about to get real feisty, folks. I'm here for it. And some may say, Natalie was a teenager, Christy. Of course she's going to get a lot of coverage. Well, according to the FBI's National Crime Information Center, an average of 460,000 children go missing every year in the United States. You can't tell me that those kids got as much net media attention as Natalie. Depressing side note. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's like the sound on Price is Right when you lose. It's like boom, 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 boom. boom. <laughs> yeah, that's that would be perfect. Yeah. Let's see if we can get their sound guy. Yeah. Uh, or lady, or sound person, or person. Uh, in two thousand five, eight hundred and thirty four thousand five hundred and thirty six people went missing in the United States. It's a terrifying number, but less than the peak of 980,000 in 1997. In 2020, the number of missing people was 
just over 543,000, which is still awful, but somehow the lowest number since 1990. Wow. Yeah. That's weird. There are, unfortunately, numerous examples of when the media chose to cover a case of a missing or murdered white woman as opposed to a woman of color. And I'm going to, I don't want to say dazzle, but I'm going, oh, fuck, I'm born to dazzle. I'm going to dazzle. Dazzle us. (laughs) Again, don't know what's wrong. Quarantine changed me. It did. On July 18th, 2005, while the media was still covering the Holloway case, Almost daily, 24-year-old Latoya Figueroa went missing when she was five months pregnant. Cable news networks such as CNN, Fox, and MSNBC neglected to cover the case at all, instead choosing to focus on Natalie Holloway. Police found Latoya's body in August 2005. She had been strangled by her boyfriend. In 2002, the media pushed nearly constant coverage of 27-year-old Lacey Peterson, who disappeared in December while eight months pregnant. And I probably just had to say her name, and the majority of our listeners knew uh, that she was found murdered by her husband, Scott. But what if I say the name Evelyn Hernandez? Evelyn was last seen in May 2002. She was a 24-year-old Hispanic woman who was nine months pregnant at the time. Evelyn's partial remains were found floating in the San Francisco Bay in July 2002. Lacey Peterson's case received worldwide media coverage, but Evelyn's case was hardly covered at all. Police did not do a press conference about her until a month after her disappearance. The worst part of Evelyn's case, her five-year-old son, Alexis, went missing with her, and to this day, their case is is unsolved. And we've all probably heard about uh, Chandra Levy, the 24-year-old government worker who went missing in May 2001. Two years before that, 29-year-old Joyce Chang disappeared. Both women lived in the same neighborhood, worked for the same government agency, were young, attractive brunette. But police were quick to say that Joyce probably committed suicide and her case only made the local news. Most believe this was due to the fact that Joyce was Taiwanese. Both cases did turn out to be murders, which have since been solved, but the existence of missing white woman syndrome feels unfortunately very accurate. Mark Efron, the vice president of news at MSNBC, said Natalie's disappearance during a chaperone trip is unusual and would have been heavily covered by MSNBC regardless of her gender or ethnicity because, quote, what makes news is the unexpected. You know what I find unexpected? What? A family of four going missing from Aruba in 2001. Here we go. An entire family... We've got Goran, Navina, and their sons Igor and Ivan were last seen August 2001. They have not been heard from since. They are still listed on Aruba's missing persons website, and yet it didn't get coverage at all. I have never even heard of these people. And unfortunately, that means so there's not a lot of information out there about them. So even if we were like, we're going to do this as a case, there's not a lot to find out. Right, right. You know? And I'm not saying that American media are the only ones guilty of this. In Canada, missing Indigenous women receive 27 times less news coverage than white women, as well as receive less detailed headlines and articles. So I do acknowledge that there's a problem when it comes to reporting on some cases over others. 
And I know it might be weird of me to bring up this issue when I'm talking about a missing white woman, but I mean, you don't know what direction the research is going to take you. And I knew that this was something that existed. I didn't realize it had a name to it. I just wanted to bring it forward to be like, we, we know that this is a thing. I think we do our best to try and be more diverse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that. important. I think it's important to, to note and to, to also remind that, that it's interesting that this is, this is a phenomenon that has existed obviously for some time. And, and it, it, it was interesting. The Natalie Holloway cases is a great example of something that was so, I mean, the news was so saturated with it. You're right. It was taking precedence over the Iraq war. I mean, that's, that's wild. I mean, that's not just taking precedence over yeah. uh, women of color and and other cases. That's also taking precedence over an entire war that was, yeah. you know, a huge, obviously, I don't need to explain the, the Iraq war. If I do, uh, Google it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we don't have time. We, we, these episodes are already so long. But you know what I mean? I think it is important to 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 give that reminder and and to bring that up. I think that that's a great point. I think that's a great point. I think it's it's we would be remiss if we didn't bring up missing white women syndrome. I didn't know there was a name for it either, but I'm I'm glad that I know of it now. You know, I think it's I think it's always good to to talk about any cases. It's why we do the podcast at all, but I think it is also important of course to to acknowledge that these cases are famous for a reason and 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 this is one of the reasons. So there you go. Yes. I also uh quickly feel like I should probably say like Obviously, I'm not saying that Natalie didn't deserve nationwide attention. Of course. I'm just saying there are so many people who should also get attention. I'm just I'm just showing the difference. I know a lot of people already know about it, but you know what? You're here for Natalie Holloway, and guess what, folks? We're going We're right go back, back at it. We're going to go back, but I agree with you. I think it's it's not saying we want to take anything away from her. It's no. saying, can we can we give some of that to these other cases as well? And I think that that's hundred percent true. So, so I was a little hard on the police earlier, uh, saying they didn't seem too worried about the case early on. I should mention uh, they did do a massive search during the fe- first few days of Natalie's disappearance. The Aruban government gave thousands of civil servants the day off to help join the search. Fifty Dutch Marines were deployed to the island to check the shorelines, along with three Dutch F-16s specially fitted with infrared imaging devices to scan the area for freshly dug graves. Of course, the Dutch came in to help because, remember, Aruba is part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Right, right. The Coast Guard searched the surrounding waters. Thousands of volunteers, including the International Friends of Aruba, which is a social network for newcomers to the island, searched the sand dunes and the landfill. Beth arrived in Aruba on May 30th and asked around to find the name of the men that Natalie was last seen with. Beth Beth described one of the men to the hotel employee, and she knew exactly who he was. The employee said, quote, Oh, Joran Vandersloo. He tends to prey upon young female tourists. Jesus! So that same night, Around 2 a.m., Beth, Jug, and some of the police officers go to the Vandersloo residence looking for Joran. Police spoke with Joran's father, Paulus, explaining that a girl was missing and she was last seen with Joran. Paulus says, quote, that can't be right. 
because he was at a tournament at the Holiday Inn and I picked him up in front of McDonald's at 11 p.m. Paulus went inside to get Yorin, only to find he wasn't home. He called his son and where was Yorin but at a tournament for poker at the Wyndham Hotel. So they get a hold of him, he comes home, he tells police he met Natalie at the Excelsior Casino at the Holiday Inn, and after his father picked him up, he later snuck out to meet up with Natalie at Carlos and Charlie's. He claimed he did a jello shot out of her navel. Natalie's friends claim that never happened. Yorin claimed that when the bar closed, Natalie wasn't ready to call it a night, brought up the idea of going for a ride. Quote, so me and Deepak and Satish took Natalie for a ride. I sat together with her in the back of Deepak's car. Deepak was driving and Satish was in the passenger seat. Now, Yorin told police who were there with Natalie's mother that in the back seat, he described in gross detail how he fondled Natalie and even went so far as to describe the underwear that she was wearing that night. Once again, just want to point out her mother was there. Uh, Yorin then claimed they dropped Natalie off at the front of the Holiday Inn around 2 a.m. and that she fell getting out of the car. So Yorin offered to help her inside. She refused. The police questioned Yorin's friends who were last seen with Natalie. That was 21-year-old Deepak Kalpo and his brother, 18-year-old Satish Kalpo. Apparently, they met because Satish went to school with some friends of Yorin's. So that's how they all kind of came to be friends. Deepak said that Natalie asked Yorin to dance and Yorin said no. Yet Satish claimed that Yorin definitely danced, quote, with the white girl that night couldn't even know her name. Uh, both brothers backed up Yorin's claim that they dropped Natalie off in front of the Holiday Inn. Even the detail that she fell getting out of the car and that she refused Yorin's help when he offered. When Yorin was brought in for official questioning, he claimed that Natalie was approached by a security guard. He described him as, quote, approximately 1.8 meters tall, heavy set body, close cropped hair. He wore a black t-shirt, black cotton long trousers. He had a walkie talkie in his hand. Both Deepak and Satish echoed this description of the guard and even offered to go to the police, uh, with the police to the hotel to point the guard out. And wouldn't you know, they couldn't find the guard when they got to the hotel. And not only did police not find the security guard that the three men claimed to have seen, they also didn't find Natalie on any of the hotel's security footage. So there was no way she entered through the front door of the hotel that night. The three men then started to change their stories. They all admitted to leaving the club with Natalie, and at first they said they drove around and they dropped her off at the front door. Then they claimed Natalie and, and Yorin... Uh, got dropped off at the Marriott Hotel Beach near the Fisherman's Hut. And Yorin then claimed after fooling around, he left her alone on the beach. Even Yorin's father, Paulus, said, quote, they picked up the girl, Natalie, that they drove a while and they put the girl at the beach. <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. However, three fishermen who were on that very beach said they didn't see them at all. One of the men said, quote, we arrived just after midnight at the fisherman's hut and stayed there until 4.30. If someone says they came here with a girl, he's telling lies. It would have been impossible that they were there without us seeing them unless all three of us are blind and deaf. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I like 
how passionate that guy is about just like, nope, we were here 100%. Yeah. Uh, on June 17th, 2005, 18 days after Natalie went missing, Yoren, Satish, and Deepak were arrested. Police Commissioner Dompig said, quote, the pressure, you could feel it on a daily basis. What is the press saying today? What is Beth saying today? Dompig admits that the pressure from the Holloway family, the media, and their Reuben government forced the police to make a premature arrest. Quote, under normal circumstances, we wouldn't have taken much more time to monitor them. We would have had much more evidence had we waited. Uh, his plan was to keep them on the outside, where we can watch them, listen to their calls, see what they're saying to each other. If we have to pick them up, we can't look at them other than in a cell. I just find it interesting to me that all they wanted to like follow them and watch them and record them. But yet in Aruba, it's not legal to record a conversation when a person doesn't know they're being recorded. Mm. And I know that because I've now looked it up. Right. So thank you to Officer Dompig for making me look that up. Uh, however, it has been suggested that the police were more interested in keeping the case quiet so as to not hurt the country's tourism industry. Tourism is said to be the main pillar of the economy in Aruba, with approximately 2 million tourists visiting every year, nearly 80% of which come from the United States. Dom Pig said, quote, The Aruban government is very image conscious. America is basically our bread and butter. The government, well, everyone was on our case. They wanted the case solved as soon as possible, and then the Aruban Hotel... And Tourism Association, which is a very powerful group, started putting pressure. So the three men were arrested, but not charged. As under Dutch law, a suspect can be held for up to 116 days without any charges actually being filed. Whoa. So Dompig alleged uh, that one of the detained men admitted, quote, something bad happened to Natalie after they took her to the beach. He refused to elaborate more. So let's talk about these suspects. Unfortunately, there are a lot of suspects to this case, but not not just the three that I've mentioned so far. And even more unfortunately, there is so little information out there about all of them. I have as much as I can about some, and then some a little too much. All I know, unfortunately, about the Kalpos is at the time, Deepak was 21, Satish was 18, and they were both originally from Suriname. So you're welcome that you've now heard it twice in your life. Toot toot. But then there's the main asshat, Joran Andreas Petrus Vondersloo, born August 6th, 1987. This arrogant asshole and genuine piece of shit was described by his own mother, Anita, as, quote, a sneaky liar who could have been an actor. Joran was a high school soccer star and an honor student who was planning to attend St. Leo University near Tampa, Florida in the fall of 2005. He's intelligent. His native language is Dutch, but he's also fluent in English and, forgive me, papiamento? Which leads me to an educational side note. Thank you. Papiamento is a combination of Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, English, French, Arawak, and a smattering of African languages. It is the preferred language to locals in Aruba. Huh. Wow. Well, listen, I i mean, listen, I want to talk so much more about this living piece of garbage because I feel like I don't know that much about him, but what I do know isn't good and your tone has been, dare I say, 
aggressive. Uh, oh, so really? I don't know what you got aggressive <laughs> from me calling him an arrogant asshole and a genuine piece of shit right out the gate. <laughs> it gets worse. It gets worse. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, listen, well, let's take a quick pause then. Hit the bathroom. Get yourself a drink. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And we'll see you right back when we're going to continue talking about Natalie Holloway on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? Lauren Ash here. Now, if you've listened to our show for a while, you know that I am gluten-free for health reasons. And the one thing that I miss more than anything is cereal. Big cereal fan. And there's just not a lot of gluten-free cereals out there that do it for me. Until now. That's right. I'm going to tell you about a little product called Magic Spoon. It's unbelievable, okay? Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. There's only 140 calories a serving, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and (laughs) GMO-free. I mean, come on. There's four flavors, okay, it's a variety pack, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. So good. These are the flavors of your childhood, okay? This is exactly the kind of cereal you want. So, Go to magicspoon.com slash cocktails to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code cocktails at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. So remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cocktails and use the code cocktails to save $5 on your order. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode and making this gluten-free gal's dreams come true. Hey, everybody, we want to tell you about our sponsor, Baron Jaeger. Baron Jaeger is a premium liqueur made with the highest concentration of all natural honey. This puts it in a class of its own. Additionally, at 70 proof, it's the perfect addition to any cocktail in need of an all-natural sweetener with a little kick. Sweet with a little kick sounds like me, don't you think? (laughs) Absolutely. What's up, everybody? I want to tell you about a book that is very relevant to all of our collective interests. It's called 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All. It's an eerie historical mystery like you've never read before. Written by two-time National Book Award finalist Laura Ruby. Set in Chicago in 1941, when Frankie's mother dies and her father leaves her in the orphanage, it's not supposed to be forever. Years later, Frankie wants to know what really happened to her mother. What other ghosts lurk in the shadows of her past? And how much is she willing to risk to find out? Haunting and hopeful in equal measure, says the New York Times. Stunning, says Booklist. Readers will be shocked, awed, and riveted from start to finish, says Locus Magazine. The audiobook of 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All, will be available at a special, deeply discounted price all through the month of May at your favorite digital audiobook retailer. 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All by Laura Ruby. Inspired by a true story, now in paperback from Balzer and Bray, an imprint of HarperCollins. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. Of course, we are talking about Natalie Holloway. Right before the break, Christy was having a meltdown about how much she hates Yoron Vandersloo. I think that is a common feeling about this piece of trash so uh, yeah. continue in your um uh, defamation of his character yeah. i support you well the great news is he's got a friend with a really impossible to say last name oh so Yoren's friend freddie zedon 
Arambatsis? Sometimes Oof. I feel like you're being pranked. At this point, it feels like you're being pranked. Every episode, there's something where it's like, how hard could it? Wow. Okay. Yeah, there's yeah. so many letters that I'm like, that's impossible. Yeah. This Freddy, uh, his quote is, we're going to Carlos and Charlie's for the music and for the girls. We call each other pimps. Usually, Yorin gets the American girls because he speaks English fluently. After he has them in his bed, he finds a new girl and starts over. Uh, his, circle of, his circle of friends call themselves, quote, the Pimpology Crew. And Yorin liked to use the screen name Loverboy362. Barf. Barf on barf, gross. Also, again, again, this guy was 17. 17 at this time. So Yorin, known for drugging girls and taking advantage of them, some of the girls in question were as young as 12. Yorin, of course, claims it was either consensual or that it just didn't happen at all. There are claims he filmed these encounters, and while chats uh, found on Yorin's computer prove he did film at least some of these nights, no actual videos have been found. A woman named Karen M. told police, quote, Yorin told me he stayed at the Mill Hotel in March 2005. He filmed a 14-year-old girl. She was under the influence of alcohol, and it was all taped. One of Yorin's former girlfriends told police he told her one night, quote, who knows? You may now be on the beach with someone who's able to get rid of a corpse. Uh, mm. But okay, what about other friends? Like sure, someone he's super close to. I'm sure they have something nice to say. Yeah. Uh like his friend and possible co-conspirator Deepak. Uh what does he say of the night Natalie disappeared? Quote, "I think Yoren raped her, but is afraid to admit it." I don't think he murdered her, though. Ah, <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. At the time of Natalie's disappearance, Yorin was only 17. So technically, he wasn't allowed in the casinos, but they let him in because of who his father was. His father being Paulus van der Slew, a prominent Dutch justice official, who, while Yorin was in prison, smuggled a cell phone so that Yorn could keep up to date on developments in the case, which totally feels like something an innocent person would do. But more on his shitbag father in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> so while Yorn and Satish and Deepak were in jail, one of them gave police info that led police to arrest Steve Crows on oh. June 17th. Steve Crows was described as a quiet 26-year-old divorced father of a two-year-old son. He worked as a DJ on a party boat cruise ship called Tattoo under the name DJ Diablo. The ship, which offered dining, dancing, and swimming, docked about 1,000 feet from the Holiday Inn where Natalie was staying. When asked about his whereabouts on the night of Natalie's disappearance, DJ Diablo said he was working However, his boss, Marcus Williams, said that wasn't true, stating the boat usually didn't go out on Sunday nights, and when it did, it returned by midnight. And even if the boat was running that night, trip organizer and travel agent Jody Behrman said that the students did not go on the tattoo boat as a group. 
Oh, of course, if we want to know exactly what happened on that trip, we'd have to ask a woman who went. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She's feisty, folks. I love it. But Jody also said, quote, some could have taken a boat ride from the without the chaperones knowing. Because as Jody stated before, the chaperones were not supposed to keep up with their every move. Diablo's whereabouts on the night in question has never been confirmed. One week after Natalie's disappearance, Diablo told police that he witnessed the Calpos and Joran. I love that I keep Joran. I keep, eh, I should have just typed it as a Y for myself, for my drunken self. Uh, Joran dropping Natalie off at the lobby of the hotel. Diablo then admitted he went for drinks around 1130 at a bar called Choose a Name. It is a legit bar in Aruba, I've checked. Diablo said, I don't remember going to Carlos and Charlie's. Well, it's a good thing the staff at Carlos and Charlie's remember seeing you at 10 p.m. Oh, my God. DJ Diablo claims that he partied until 4.30 a.m. and then went to sleep on Tattoo. But the bars close around 1 to 2 p.m. So where'd you go after that, Diablo? If that is your real name, which we've established it's not. It is not. It is a nickname you gave yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I get it. His name is Steve. But once you start calling a man Diablo, it's hard to stop. Yeah, you can't go back. I get it. So basically... The dude tries to cover for Yorin and the Calpo brothers by telling their bullshit lie about dropping Natalie off. Then he lied about being at work. Then he admitted about being partying that night and had access to a boat and was never fully investigated by the police. It gets better and better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Also, based on uh, info from the three original detainees, on June 22nd, police arrested... Paulus Vandersloo, Joran's father. Now, I could not find much information about Paulus, only a cryptic post on a forum that said he was, quote, a checkered past starting with a 30-year-old incident at a Netherlands university. I hate that I don't know more than that, yeah. but I'm dying to know. Yeah. That same forum listed Paulus as a womanizer and a gambler, Uh, Again, I wish I knew more, but we know that he did gamble because he was at the Holiday Inn Casino the night that Joran met Natalie. Paulus was at a tournament, and when he left early, he let Joran take his place. Again, Joran is not legally allowed to be in there, but his dad was like, let's go gamble together. Then you could take my spot. As stated earlier, Paulus was a prominent Dutch justice official, and in 2005, he was a judge in training which means he was a judge in the Netherlands, moved to Aruba, and had to spend three years hearing a limited number of cases before he could be an official full judge. Also at the time, if there was a complaint brought up against the police in Aruba, you'd go before Paulus. He handled most police cases and was good friends with them. The reason that Paulus was arrested? Either Joran or one of the Calpos told police that Paulus told them to keep quiet and not cooperate with police. Then told them, if there's no body, they have no case. So like our friend Taylor Swift says, no body, no crime. Do you like how I called her our friend, even though she doesn't know we exist? Yet. I'm putting it in the universe, and I'm once again using this podcast 
as a vision board. <laughs> of course. Of course. You know? Also, I know it's a bit early for this, but since I'm already quoting T-Swift, my early feelings on Yorin are, quote, I think he did it, but I just can't prove it. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly, Yorin. Also, one thing to note, allegedly in the original police report, there were written transcripts of the interviews the police had with Yorin. Some of those transcripts got altered by Paulus in his own handwriting. Oh, my God. Those particular parts of the reports, though, have since just magically disappeared. Oh, come on. So at this point, police have Yorin, Deepak, Satish, Paulus, and DJ Diablo in custody. They release Paulus and Diablo on June 26th. Satish and Deepak get released shortly after that. Police then arrest 21-year-old Antonius Mickey John and 29-year-old Abraham Alfred Jones, a.k.a. Maka, on the suspicion of murder and kidnapping of Natalie Holloway. Both men were former security guards at the Allegro Hotel, which was closed for renovations at the time. The men were known for cruising hotels to pick up women, and at least one of them had a prior incident with law enforcement. Both men were released a week later without any official charges. Early into the investigation, the police commissioner, Jan van der Straten, uh, retired and was replaced with Gerald Dompik. I can't find exactly when Jan retired or why he chose that exact moment, but I kind of can't help but wonder if it has to do with the fact that not only was he best friends with Paulus van der Sloo, he was also... Yorin's godfather. <laughs> oh my god! So did he retire early to avoid having to deal with the arrest of his friend or possibly, again, like, there's zero information about this. It's maddening. So Dom Pig takes over the investigation. Search continues. The Aruban police spent over $3 million on the investigation, which is over 40% of their whole operational budget. On July 17th, a piece of duct tape was found on a remote beach in the National Forest. Attached to the duct tape were strands of long blonde hair. DNA came back. It was not a match to Natalie Holloway. I want to know, did they check it to anybody else? Or was it just like an, oh, that's weird, and move on with their lives? Yeah, good question. After a witness claimed to have seen urine covered in mud walking out of a pond near the Marriott Hotel wearing only one shoe... The pond was drained. Once again, nothing found. A jogger claimed to have seen a man burying a blonde woman in a landfill on May 30th. The police had searched the landfill shortly after Natalie disappeared, but after this witness came forward, they searched it three more times. They brought in FBI cadaver dogs. Once again, nothing found. A witness came forward claiming to have seen Yorin chase Natalie into a small building that was under construction. The witness alleges that Yorin came out of the building carrying Natalie's body when he slammed her on the ground and then put her into a crawl space. However, no construction or building activities were underway at the location the witness claimed that this had happened. So at one point, Yorin offered to show police exactly the spot where he left Natalie at the beach. As he was now claiming, he simply left her there alone. He showed the police a spot not far from the Marriott Hotel. He said he'd taken her to that spot near the fisherman's hut. 
we had mentioned the fisherman's hut briefly yes. before. It's a uh, collection of concrete shacks built to withstand the elements where local fishermen store their equipment. The hut was right at the edge of the water about 10 minutes from the Holiday Inn. Yorin pointed to an area near the fisherman's hut and said, quote, that's where he did it. That where he, that's where he probably raped and murdered Natalie. Who is he talking about? Oh, you know, his friend Deepak. So now Yorin is saying he wasn't the one alone with Natalie. Oh my God. Deepak was. So Deepak and Satish Kelpo both get arrested again in August 2005, along with a new suspect, Yorin's friend, Freddie Arambutsis. Good one, Christy. Close enough. Yep. A 21-year-old who refers to himself as, quote, Locoman Pimp. Police have learned that prior to Natalie's disappearance, Freddie had allegedly been involved in an incident with an underage girl and that his friends Yorin and the Kelpo brothers were also involved. Then, just days later, Hurricane Katrina devastates southeast Louisiana and Mississippi. It causes 1,836 deaths, an estimated $125 billion in damages, which, math alert, would be $169 billion in 2021. Thank you. So when Hurricane Katrina is taking over the news, the majority of the media left Aruba and started to focus on Katrina. Even Natalie's father, Dave, who is an insurance agent, had to put his own search on hold so he could head home to help clients affected by the hurricane. He was finally able to return to Aruba on October 21st, Natalie's 19th birthday, which he spent searching a well, I might add. So I can't even imagine. Oh, God. So while the media were distracted by the largest natural disaster in the United States in 100 years, uh, Aruban police quietly released Yorin Satish and Deepak on September 5th. They were released on the condition that they would be available for questioning at any time and that they would stay in Dutch territory. But like any Dutch territory? Because they didn't say stay in Aruba. So four days later, Joran and his father flew to Holland, where Joran was allowed to attend college. He withdrew from his first choice, which was St. Leo's in Florida, due to his, quote, notoriety and travel restrictions. Oh, my God. It has not been stated whether these special circumstances were for all three men or just for Joran. On September 15th, the daytime show Dr. Phil aired a video that appeared to show a hidden camera interview with Deepak Kelpo telling Jamie Skeeters, a private investigator, that Natalie had sex with all three of them the night she disappeared. But it came out that the video was heavily edited to change Deepak's answer from saying, no, she didn't, to simply, she did. There are versions of the original video and the aired video uh, on YouTube somewhere, I will look for them. I might try and post them somewhere. Maybe, I don't know, our virtual case file on truecrimeandcocktails.com. Thank you. So Deepak sues the Dr. Phil show, but the suit somehow just gets dismissed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in November 2005, Paulus sued the Aruban government for unjust detention, and he won. This allowed him to be completely cleared as a suspect so he could continue his job. 
He then tried to seek monetary damages for himself and his family, and thankfully his request was denied. Right. Then we jump to February 2006. The Holloway family files a wrongful death suit against the Vandersloos, accusing Yorin of malicious, wanton, and willful disregard of the rights, safety, and well-being of Natalie. They would also file a wrongful death suit against Deepak and Satish ten months later, both suits were dismissed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. We're going to get more angry as this goes on, folks. Of course. April 15th, 2006, police arrest. Oh, for the love of Jeffrey Van Crumvort. How is there an R in there? <laughs> Stop <laughs> pranking her. Enough. Yeah. She's yeah, doing good I, work. From now on, I'm just going to first first name and act like I don't know. the. Right. I can't act like I don't know stuff. You can't. They arrest Jeffrey uh, on suspicion of dealing narcotics. The prosecutor believed that this could be related to the Holloway case. Police also questioned a 19-year-old named Michael, who worked at the same private security company as Jeffrey. They questioned Michael twice, which I find interesting. Since he's the son of police commissioner Gerald Dompig. (laughs) Stop. Gerald was quick to point out, quote, Michael was merely a one of many people who were questioned as witnesses in this investigation and was never considered a suspect. Oh, okay, sure. Shortly after that, on April 24th, Dom Pig was no longer lead investigator on the Holloway case. No Whoa. reasons have been publicly disclosed, but before he left the investigation, someone asked him what the current state was for the investigation, and he said, quote, I would say, critical last phase. I wish I knew what he was basing that on because this yeah. is 2006. I don't think critical spent- last phase. You have no body. You have no evidence. You have a bunch of people who are contradicting themselves and yeah. each other. Give me a break. Yeah. Uh, and before I forget, Michael Dompig was never arrested and Jeffrey was released after 10 days. Mm-hmm. On May 17th, another suspect, Guido Weaver, the son of a former Aruban politician, was detained in the Netherlands on suspicion of assisting in the abduction, battering, and killing of Natalie Holloway. Guido was questioned for six days and then released. Interesting. So it's been a while since I've been able to speak negatively about Yorin. Well, in April 2007, that poor excuse of a human collaborated with a Dutch reporter to release a book called The Case of Natalie Holloway, My Own Story About Her Disappearance on Aruba. Just rolls off the tongue, huh? Uh. So Joran said, quote, I see this book as my opportunity to be open and honest about everything that happened for anyone who wants to read it. I understand that my lies in the past seriously tarnished my credibility and that some people will not believe what is written in this book. Still, I feel contributing to this book is something I have to do and I hope that contributing in this way recovers the truth. And I'm sure he means that. Does he? Well, Yorin also said, quote, I want to apologize to Natalie's parents, Dave Holloway and Beth Twitty, and to both of their families for the fact that I initially made up statements. I can't say that I agree with many of the things they did, but the pain of not knowing where their daughter is and what happened to her must be unimaginably great. I hope every day that Natalie will be found. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't 
I, I did not personally read his book, nor did I bother to seek it out. Uh, it was only ever published in Dutch, so I also wasn't going to do that work. I just wasn't going to spend a lot of time screaming at the sure. top of my lungs sure. the full time. So why put myself through that? So weeks after this book is published, 20 police investigators search the Vandersloo home in Aruba. The prosecutor's office said the team has indications that justify a more thorough search. They did not say what prompted this sudden search, but claimed it was not related to Joran's book. Uh. Then on May 12th, the Calpo family house is searched. Deepak and Satish were detained for about an hour because they initially objected to the police entering their home. Once again, prosecutors wouldn't give the reason for the search, but said it was, quote, to get a better image of the place or circumstances where an offense may have been committed and to understand the chain of events leading to that offense. Which is saying like a lot and saying nothing all yeah, at the same time. Exactly. So late 2007, the Aruban police claimed to have new incriminating evidence. So Joran was apprehended in Netherlands and the Calpos were arrested in Aruba. No word has been released on what that evidence was, but we know that it came from a computer and online chat records that took place between the three suspects in 2005 that involved the three men discussing, quote, picking up American girls and what they were planning to do with them. A judge found there was not enough evidence to suggest that Natalie had met a violent end, so the three suspects were released in December 2007, and the Holloway case was closed. But don't fret, my pets. <laughs> in February 2008, a Dutch reporter named Peter R. De Vry, De Vry, uh released an interview he had with Joran, where Joran did not realize he was being filmed. In the video, Joran claims that Natalie was heavily intoxicated, and while they were having sex, she collapsed and had a seizure. When Joran was unable to revive her, he, quote, I tried to shake her. I was shaking the bitch. I was like, what is wrong with you, man? I almost wanted to cry. Why does this shit have to happen to me? Ah, <laughs> oh, he's just so maddening. Yeah. Instead of calling for help, Joran claimed he used a payphone on the beach and called a friend who owned a boat, and her body was dumped into the sea. When asked how he knew Natalie was dead, Joran shrugged his shoulders and said, I just knew. And just in case we didn't hate this lying piece of shit before, he added, quote, I had absolutely no bad feelings about it. I've not lost one night of sleep over it. I think I'm incredibly lucky that she's never been found because if she'd been found, I'd be in deep shit. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. The video... So I was yeah. going to say DJ Diablo boat. Anyway, continue. Oh, God. Well, I'm convinced that's probably how it went. Right. The video aired to more than 7 million viewers, the highest rated news broadcast in Dutch television history. Hollywood side note. Ooh. This broadcast was recognized as the best current affairs program at the International Emmy Awards. In September 2008, Natalie's mother, Beth, joined the director 
in Manhattan to attend the awards ceremony where he dedicated the Emmy to the memory of Natalie Holloway. But since the video was not obtained legally, it can't be used as evidence. And of course, once he found out he was being filmed, Yorin has recanted and claims he was lying. The existence of this footage convinced Aruban authorities to reopen Natalie's case, despite having closed it less than two months before. Mm. Then we have a couple of years of silence in the case, and we get to 2010, which is a very active year in the case, especially for Yorin. So March 2010, after Natalie had been missing for 1,758 days, a skeleton is believed to be found. John and Patty Muldowney, who vacationed in Aruba, were looking for fo- through their photos and saw what they believed to be a skeleton in one of the photos they took while scuba diving. They said, you can see a fish, you can see some rocks, and then you see a body lying on its back facing up. I've, I think I found the photo. I do not see what they see. Yeah. I, the area was searched and nothing was turned up. But I, I mean, I'll post the uh, photo on our socials. That's Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails and Thank Twitter you. at Not Detectives. Nice. Then in November, after 1,992 days missing, a jawbone was found. DNA proved it was not Natalie. But then people just were like, ah, random jawbone, what you gonna do? And jawbone, jawbone, what you gonna do? That's what it sounded like. Oh, thank you. I'm not making fun of the jawbone. That's horrifying. No, but but we we make light in the moments to. Because they should have cared that they found a jawbone. Good God. That's like a huge, that's a, that's a, that's something. Hey guys, this is a huge issue. We found the jawbone of someone. It's not Natalie Holloway's. It's someone else. You don't care? Like, that's... Also, like, it's not like they could be like, oh, it came from an animal. It's like, did it? Yeah, exactly. It's either uh... it's either human or it's not. I promised more urine content. Of course. And I know all of you want to hear it. February 10th, 2010. Yorin's father, Paulus Vandersloo, collapsed on a tennis court. He had a heart attack and never recovered. He was mm. 56. Oh, wow. Now, Yorin takes this hard. It turns out uh, his father didn't exactly have the money that the family thought they did. Oh. In fact, Paulus was penniless. No way. Apparently, Yorin's legal fees completely drained their family. And Yorin had recently been dumped by a new girlfriend whose name I did not find out or take the time. So sorry, hun. So Yorin gets dumped and now he's broke and he has no place to live. So what's a guy to do? Well, the answer is email the lawyers of Natalie's mother, Beth, and offer to share circumstances of Natalie's death, identify those involved, and show the lawyer Natalie's burial site in exchange for the tiny sum of $250,000. That piece of shit. It gets worse. What a fucking asshole. A hundred percent. After reaching a payment deal, Yorin met with the lawyer, John Kelly, to sign a contract. John said, quote, 
Joran started by claiming he'd taken Natalie to the beach and that he'd thrown her down on the ground when she tried to stop him from leaving. When she fell, she hit her head on a rock and died. He hit her body, returned home where he told his father what had happened. Joran claimed that Paulus accompanied him to the location that night, but said he went to the car while his father further concealed the remains. No! A few days later, Joran said his father buried Natalie under the house. He said he did not actually see his father inter the young woman's remains, but insisted Paulus showed him the site later. So Beth, at this point, desperate to know it's been almost five years. She of just course. wants an answer. Sure. She'll just, she'll pay the money. So she agrees. She'll give him 25000 up front and then 225000 when they get what they need. John Kelly takes $10,000 to the, a meeting with Yorin in Aruba. Then they wire $15,000 to Yorin's bank account in the Netherlands. Yorin then admits he's been lying. <laughs> and the details are sketchy of how it happened, but then he just, like, flew to Peru? <laughs> are you kidding? I'm not. John Kelly's investigators do a review of the permit for the house where Yorin claims the burial spot was, revealed that no foundation or structure was there in May of 2005. A building permit had been requested for the area, but wasn't issued until October 18th, which was more than four months after Natalie went missing. So now Beth has paid Yorin $25,000 and has nothing to show for it, and worst of all, Yorin used the money to fund a trip to Lima, Peru to enter a poker tournament. I just, oh, wow. Yeah, we're we're on the we're on the we're on the edge of where it gets bad. <laughs> it's not at the worst part yet? No. Taking advantage of the family of a deceased woman? Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready. Yorin's mother Anita said that Yorin is quote sick in the head. And he was supposed to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital in the Netherlands. According to Anita, quote, he had agreed to be admitted two days before he was due to leave for the Netherlands. He left the house. He just left a note on the kitchen table. The note said to not worry. He'd gone to Peru for a poker tournament. Anita said Joran was very affected by his father's death because he felt responsible. Now... We uh, shift over to Peru. At the poker tournament, Yorin, who is now 22 years old, meets Stephanie Flores Ramirez, a 21-year-old college student and daughter of a prominent Peruvian businessman. The two were seen entering Yorin's hotel room, number 309, at 5.33 a.m. on May 30, 2010. At 8.36 a.m., Yorin called the front desk to be let into his room because he was somehow locked out. 20 minutes later, he left carrying a backpack. The TV in his room was turned up, and according to the clerk at the front desk, Yorin said, quote, Don't disturb my girl. After Stephanie's family reported her missing two days later, the hotel staff finally entered the room and found Stephanie beaten with a broken neck. Her money and credit cards were missing. Oh, and did I forget to mention Stephanie had won about $10,000 at this tournament? It was also missing. Oh. 
Police believe that Joran fled in Stephanie's car and abandoned it before traveling south to Chile. On June 3rd, Joran was found in a taxi with newly cut dyed red hair and immediately arrested and deported to Peru. On June 7th, Joran admitted that while Stephanie used his computer without his permission, an instant message popped up on the screen threatening him. When Joran explained to her why he was being threatened and his whole association with the Natalie case, Stephanie freaked out and Joran claims she struck him on the left side of his head. So Joran retaliated by, quote, at that moment, impulsively, with my right elbow, I hit her in the face, exactly on the top of her nose. I think she started to faint. It affected me. So I grabbed the front of her neck and strangled her for a minute. There was blood everywhere. What am I going to do now? I had blood on my shirt. There was also blood on the bed. So I took off my shirt, put it on her face, pressing hard until I killed Stephanie. When asked in court to give a description of the murder, Joran's cold response was, quote, She was on the bed when I hit her hard with my right elbow. I think her head went back and hit the wall. Then she begins to bleed. Immediately I get on top of her and with both my hands strangle her, keeping her that way for a minute. After I throw her to the floor, she keeps breathing. At that moment, I take off my shirt, put it on her face. I don't remember for how long, but she stops breathing. This is why I think I caused her death. <laughs> In true Yorin fashion, though, he later recanted, claiming he was confused when no. he confessed. No. Confused? No. Uh, and yet, he admitted that following the murder... He left the hotel, purchased two cups of coffee and some cake, returned to the room where he ate breakfast over her dead body. Stop! And if that wasn't sick enough, I'd like to point out that Yorin murdered Stephanie on May 30th, 2010, which is the exact five-year anniversary of Natalie's disappearance. Also, I didn't write this in my notes just because I forgot because I was running frantic at this point. He was found... He'd gone through the computer. He did some online gambling for a while and then just quickly checked for, like, ways to get out of Peru. So he did, like, the online gambling while she was most likely dead. So there's that. In March 2011, Joran's lawyer announced he intended to plead guilty by reason of insanity. January 2012, Joran actually pleads guilty to the murder of Stephanie Flores Ramirez, saying, quote, Yes, I want to plead guilty. I wanted from the first moment to confess sincerely. I'm truly sorry for this act. I feel very bad. He also confessed to robbery as he stole Stephanie's belongings, including her money, credit card, and vehicle. Joran was sentenced to 30 years, minus the two years he had already served, as he was put in prison around 2010, and this it takes time to go from when you're arrested to trial. Of course. And whatnot. Uh, however, once his, uh, oh, he's eligible for release in 2038. But once his sentence is complete, he is to be extradited to the United States to face charges of extortion and wire fraud. Because on the day he was arrested in South America, American authorities issued a warrant for his arrest in connection with his plot to extort a quarter of a million dollars from the Holloway family. So fingers crossed this pile of trash is in prison for the rest of his life. 
Absolutely. And since he's such a massive piece of shit, yeah. Joran attempted to get his sentence lightened by offering to tell the court where Natalie's remains could be Stop. found. Stop! Which leads to a section I like to call Joran's Lies. Joran's <laughs> Lies. Live for it. Thank you. God, you and I at an ad agency in the 60s. Basically, you and I as madmen, but it's all chicks. Yep. And we're yep. all smoking and we're all like... We're all Peggy's. We're all Peggy's and we're all uh, Christina Hendricks. <laughs> oh, God. I wish. I know. I wish. God, I love her. Yeah, she's the best. So for one thing, Yoren has openly admitted to using the media to pay for his gambling addiction. He would keep 90% of his Natalie story exactly the same, but change up the last 10% to, quote, just to keep the public interested. On March 2006, Joran went on Fox News to talk with Greta Van Susteren. He talked about drinking at the bar with Natalie and then leaving her behind at the beach. February 2008, he was on the Hidden Camera interview where he said she had a seizure and that they threw her body into the sea, quote, like an old rag. <sighs> then in November 2008, once again, another interview on Fox with Greta Van Susteren. Joran claimed he sold Natalie into sex slavery. He claims he met a man at a casino who offered to pay him for a blonde girl. He could only describe him as an older man, maybe 30 or 40, oh, and he please. didn't know his full name. He also refused to admit how much he was paid and then immediately said it was $10,000. Greta says, why won't you just tell us the truth? Joran says, quote, because the truth hurts. I fucking hate him so much. Yeah. Yorin then went on to imply that his father disposed of the body and paid $50,000 to bribe two policemen to look the other way. Oh! Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing for me. If okay. we need to just, if we need to, if we need to just like get this episode to the prison that he's in, or just like send materials to the other people who are there just to let them know they can make up their own minds about the beatings they'd like to give this son of a bitch. Because I know that I'm not at the end yet and I know that I'm two peach margs in. <laughs> but there's a special place in hell for somebody who... First of all, does all of the shit that we've already known that he's done. Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously there's a special place in hell for, for, for a murderer in general. Yeah. But somebody who's doing the things that you've just outlined. That is, mm -hmm. that's next level. Because that's playing on the emotions, the, the pain of, of so many people, of families. That's, I wish him luck. I wish him well, because he's going to need it. Please continue. Yeah. Continuing with Joran's lies, he once claimed, quote, Deepak, Satish, Natalie, and I drove to my house. When we arrived there around 1.40 a.m., I asked Natalie if she wanted to come with me to my apartment. I wanted to have a sexual relation with her and afterwards call a taxi to bring her back to her hotel. Then at one point, he'd run out of money, again, 
this king turd went on Dutch TV, agreed to take a polygraph test. However, he became infuriated when the findings were unfavorable. Specifically, his responses to questions about the disposal site and whether or not uh, Natalie's body had been moved all showed signs of deception. The host of the show announced that Joran had failed the polygraph test. Joran sprang out of his chair, threw a glass of water at the floor, and stormed out of the studio. So, I just... I can't with this man. So, he told the police that he dropped Natalie off at the hotel. Then he told them he left her at the beach. Then at one point, he claimed that Deepak raped her, and then... He went back, they, he claims they went back to his place. Other quotes he has said to the police, quote, Natalie could still be alive, but have gone into hiding because of all the media surrounding the oh, case. Stop it. Quote, stop. It's easy for a girl to dye her hair and not be recognized anymore. Mm, this one's my least favorite. Quote, that no one could prove him guilty of a crime that hadn't been proven to take, have taken place. So it wasn't, you can't prove I didn't do it because I didn't do it. Like, it's not an, you can't say I didn't do it because I didn't do it. It's, you can't prove it because you can't prove the crime happened. So specific, like, his wording is maddening. Pure narcissist. True, true, <laughs> from birth, pure unadulterated narcissist yeah yes so we've had enough of urine yeah we moment. have we have but like a case of herpes he'll be back <laughs> oh no it never goes away never uh so september 2015 natalie's father dave is contacted by a man named gabriel no last name is ever given publicly gabriel has a roommate named john ludwig and john made claims that he knew where Natalie's remains are. Turns out, John was living in Aruba in 2010 when he met Yorin. I guess he's still kind of here, folks, but again, I told you he'd be back. <laughs> Never fully go away. Yeah. They quickly became friends, and one night while watching TV, a Lifetime movie came on about the Holloway case. Yorin started saying things like, oh, it didn't go like that. Oh, they got that part wrong, too. And then he just started opening up to John and claimed that he gave Natalie a drink. And when he went to kiss her later, she started foaming at the mouth and choked on her own vomit. But because he just drugged her, he didn't want to get caught. So he called his dad, Paulus, who broke Natalie's legs, put her in a burlap sack and buried her under a cactus in the National Forest. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, this is all according to John. Of course. We're not going to like John. So Dave's private investigator sets up a sting operation to get Gabriel to have John confess on hidden camera. Because Gabriel has a daughter, or he might have two. I think for sure he has one. But he was very like, as a father to a daughter, I can't even begin to imagine what you're going through. He wants to do whatever he can to help. So they go to New Orleans because Louisiana is a one-party state. 
meaning federal law permits recording conversations with the consent of just one of the parties present. So during these recordings, John claims Joran started to get paranoid that the body would be found, so he paid John $1,500 to move the body. John claimed he crushed the bones up, mixed them with bones of a dog, paid a morgue employee $200 so he could push the bag into the fire and then scattered her ashes in the sea. John later claimed that the body was moved and the skull was burned. So not unlike Yorin, John's story just kept changing. Right. But then John admitted that Yorin taught him always change your story because they'll never know which one is true. The thing is also, John was obsessed with Yorin. They first met because they ran into each other at a grocery store. John was visiting Aruba because he had an aunt that lived there. These are some things John said about meeting Yorin for the first time. Quote, he's fucking famous. I always looked up to this guy. Ah, oh, I always thought he was cool. I love how he's cocky and fucking knows he got away with it. John then fully admits to being enamored with Yorin. At one point, they start going out to pick up girls. Sometimes they would drug them. He admitted they'd go out probably five, six times a week, and oh, only two or three of those would they have would the girls be passed out. Ugh. Once during a threesome, the girl passed out. So John and Yorin, these are John's words, quote, finished each other off. Oh. Yorin called it European style. John admits this happened more than once. Wow. John is also a gross turd like Yorin, as he blames Stephanie for, quote, egging Yorin on. Quotes that could make you hate him. I mean, I also... I have one exact quote, but there's a, another quote I did not write down where he's talking about Stephanie and he was like, I can't believe it's that bitch's fault. He's where he is. So he blames her for making him mad. And it's like, I'm sorry, but a person, if, if you make somebody else mad, you're not allowed to kill them. Like, that's not how it works, John. It's not life. Yeah. But when asked about, uh, Gabriel was trying to get him to talk about Natalie and where the body could be and that kind of thing. And he was like, how are you not telling the cops about this? Like, she was just, a, she was 18. Like, come on. John said, quote, it wasn't my kid. So could have thrown it in the ocean. Could have flushed it down the toilet. I don't give a shit. Again, John is meant to be with Yorin. Yeah. John and Yorin were roommates for a while. And Yorin even used John's laptop when he extorted money from the Holloways. Well, so that checks out. John later claims he has proof in Aruba. So Gabriel and John fly to Aruba. John digs in his aunt's backyard and pulls out a Ziploc baggie containing four pieces of bone fragments. The bones get analyzed by the Aruban police and they say... Sorry, not human. Dave Holloway is not listening to that one bit. 
the things this poor man has heard about his daughter, I can't even. Uh, So Dave takes the fragments to a DNA forensic expert in the United States. They run some tests and find out one of the fragments is human. However, after months of waiting on DNA, there was no match to Natalie. Now, this part about the bone fragments came from the Oxygen documentary about Natalie Holloway. Most of it was very interesting. Uh, The show ended with them being like, oh, well, we'll get the results October 6th. The last episode aired in August. They couldn't wait less than two months they just left it to the point. Episode. So I had to Google, like, because it, it came out like four years ago. So I had to Google the answer. I was very disappointed. Also, the forensic expert was like, you know what? I'm going to keep doing this because we owe it to the family. And I was like, oh, more than fair. And we owe it to the world to let them know that a missing girl's been found. I'm like, you owe us nothing. Like, no, the you owe the the family sure but the world no yeah uh my point is oxygen rude yeah it was rude if you have don't cliffhanger if you're never coming back yeah if you're coming back cliffhanger if you're not stop it (laughs) so we've got a section that some of it's great and some of it i'm gonna throw my computer it's a section i've entitled where are they now yeah So just a few people who I've found recent things on that I've spoken of throughout this that I just, you know, thought we'd want to know. For example, let's start with a fun one. Matthew Holloway. Yeah. Who is Natalie Holloway's younger brother. He is now married and him and his wife had a daughter named Riley in December of 2014. Oh. The first grandchild for the Holloways. That's nice. Dave Holloway, Natalie's father... On April 11th, 2006, he published a book called Aruba, The Tragic Untold Story of Natalie Holloway and the Corruption in Paradise. Again, I I just, I'm not sold on the super long titles, but, you know. So Beth Holloway, her mother, the Lifetime movie Natalie Holloway that Yoren and John watched was actually based on a 2000 book that Beth wrote called Loving Natalie, A Mother's Testament of Hope and Faith. Beth also founded the Natalie Holloway Resource Center, which offers aid and support to families of those who've recently gone missing, as well as give advice to the public on traveling safely. It also works with high school and college campuses throughout the U.S. to educate teenagers on traveling safe, college safety, and law enforcement careers. Also, This is a slight throwback to one of our previous episodes where I gave a slight tidbit and now I'm giving more. Uh, After meeting at a fundraiser in early December 2006, Beth started dating John Ramsey, better known as the father of Jean Bonnet. Beth's husband, Jug, started divorce proceedings December 29th. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. And John and Beth were an item by January. Oh, and just to remind everyone, in case they're not really remembering times, Patsy Ramsey, John's wife, died in late June 2006, six months before he started dating Beth Holloway, which felt soon to me, but, you 
know, I, I wasn't there. Sure. Sadly, their relationship did not work out. But John just like refused to admit that they were ever a couple until years after they broke up. But in October 2007, Beth openly admitted they were dating. But John at the time was asked about it and said they were, quote, just developing a friendship of respect and admiration out of common interests related to their children. Mm -hmm. Sad. John finally admitted they were a couple three years after they broke up, but by then he'd already married a fashion designer named Jan Russo in July of 2011. Right. So there's some Jean Bonnet family. Where are they now? Well, let's go. get to the to the other where are they nows. John Ludwig. Yeah. What about that piece of shit, John Thing Ludwig? Thing one. Let's talk about him. Well, in March of 2018, he attempted to kidnap one of his ex-girlfriends, a oh. woman named Emily Heisted. When she arrived home, he jumped out from beside her garage, grabbed her from behind, and shoved a knife at her. Emily managed to get the knife and stab John, and now he's dead. No way. Yes. So maybe I should stop calling him a piece of shit. Nah. <laughs> no. No. I think that's she, fair. Like, she went on Dr. Phil. She's done all these things. It's just like, I would have no interest in that, but, I mean, kudos to her. Now, here, here is where... I just don't have the right words and they're all in front of me, you know? Sure. Sure. Mm. Yarin. Oh, God. Uh-oh. Herpes are back. A woman. I don't know how to fully pronounce her name. I'm going to do my best. A woman named Lady Figueroa was visiting her cousin in prison when she met Yarin. This prison... I want to point out, was so lax that prisoners could have family members visit them in their cells to just hang out. That's weird. So after some time of her showing up to see her cousin and getting to know Yorin as the beautiful human being that he is, <sighs> in July 2014... 27-year-old Yorin and 25-year-old Lady got married. And then two months later, she gave birth to their daughter, Dushy Trudy Vandersloo. Oh, boy. During an interview that Yorin gave, while sitting next to his wife, holding her hand, he said, somebody said this was hidden camera, but he looks directly into the camera multiple times, so I kind of call that bull. He says, quote, I always lied to the police. I never told the truth. Also, when I was younger, I never told everything. The police just never knew what they had to ask me. It should also be noted, yes, he did give he gave this interview in front of his wife, but he gave it in Dutch and she does not speak Dutch. So, but she's been told what he said and she just believes he is not the monster that everyone believes. She says he's changed. Sure. Lady also claims that Yorin was stabbed in prison. The top prison official said 
That is a lie. He then followed it with, quote, no woman in her right mind goes to a maximum security prison and marries the biggest killer in there. <laughs> but also, lady, what are you doing? Even if he's not a monster, he's in prison until 2038. Then he's going to go to America and do another possible 20 plus years. Okay. Uh, and up to date. Ooh, I'm, I, I didn't have, I don't have another one. So up to date side note. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that was on the fly. I liked it. As of February, 2021, Joran is now possibly going to get another 18 years onto his sentence for smuggling drugs into prison. Oh boy. In August, 2014, however, Joran was transferred to a remote prison in the Andes where the conditions are quite rough compared to his previous prison. There's no electricity. There's no heat. The toilet is literally a hole in the floor. It drops to like minus 40 on the best of times and there's no heat. I've heard that he claimed to have started doing a hunger strike to protest the terrible conditions. Oh, sure. And I just have such a hard time feeling sorry for him. I can even, can't even say it without smiling. And I know that people are like, Christy, he's a human being. Human beings deserve to be treated in a certain way. And I agree, but this dude is a pile of shit. Oh, yes. So I stand by it. Uh, oh, and just why did he get transferred to this crazy prison? Because he threatened to kill a guard. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... Uh, lady, your man's still a monster. Oh, but great news. He's currently working on another book. And this time he's promised to, quote, dedicate a chapter to Natalie Holloway. Oh, wow. She should be so lucky. <laughs> and that ends my notes on uh, piece of shit urine. Listen. And one Miss Natalie Holloway. I have a couple of questions. Yes, I hope so, because I have a couple pages with theories. Great. My first question is, and you yeah. may not know the answer to this, do they still take a grad trip? Does that school still take a grad trip? Because it feels... This to the feels... best of my knowledge, they never stopped. Wowzer! Wowzer. Okay. Because to me, it feels like, you know, to your point also, the one way... And this is not me victim shaming. This is not me shaming anyone. But no. it does seem interesting to me that if they had had some form of curfew, some sort of check-in system at night, a, at least they would have known that she was late that night as opposed to the next day where it does feel interesting to me that then they were like, well, we'll just hope she shows up. Like, we'll just bump her flight. You know what I mean? Like, it, that feels... Yeah. My my thing is, I get that this is them cutting loose. This is them having a good time. Sure. They choose Aruba for a reason. My big thing is, I get that it's like, okay, rain on the parade by making us have to check in. Mm -hmm. But you have a check-in. Everyone at breakfast, so you can do a head count. You can make sure everyone's there. Do a count every night. I don't care how many of you are in the lobby of that goddamn hotel, but you're there 
and the kids have to pass you every yes. night. Also, maybe another time throughout the day, too, not just morning and night. Like, it's weird to me that late night is never a concern. I also saw things that said that that one of the chaperones claimed they collected all of the passports for the kids and held on to them so they wouldn't lose them. To which I say, but then how was Natalie's found in her room? Great question. So I have a lot of questions about that. I also just, again, seven chaperones for that many kids and to be like oh well they weren't supposed to actually watch them it's like but that's what a literal chaperone is and again to to, I think my thing is like okay if this isn't like there's like you know pre-planned activities every day so there are chaperones that are there but yes but no but you know what I mean to me it's like I feel like the least they could do is still check them in at night. Like to me, making sure that everybody is yes. is in their room at 11 o'clock, midnight, whatever it is, feels reasonable when this is a school sanctioned trip. This isn't like, you know, it's just a group of friends who have decided to go. This is a school associated trip on some level. It is this, you Good know, point. tradition, you know, and to me, it just feels like, I understand that whatever they don't want to do three check-ins a day fine then to me it's like morning and night like bedtime feels to me when you're dealing with your young adults we're gonna treat you with trust we're gonna give you freedom then to me it's like you still need to be home at a certain time to me that just feels reasonable again having been on a school trip at a similar age we absolutely had to check in I, I think it was 11 for us. I can't remember, to be totally honest, but I think it, it was a reasonable time. We I remember not feeling like, oh, I can't believe it's, it wasn't like it was like 8 p.m. It was like, oh, it was like, you know, we were allowed to be out till 11, and that was the thing. Now, I understand this was before cell phones were as advanced as they are now, so I get that, but it, it which is unfortunate. But it just feels to me like it would have been beneficial to at least have known, say, you know, even eight hours earlier that maybe she was missing. Here's the thing that sticks out to me. And listen, I understand that you're on urine, urine, whatever we're calling it. Urine. Oh, that's a nice na- nickname for him. Oh, I feel a couple of times I slipped there and I don't know. It could be closer to how you're supposed to say it. Okay, so, well, we're going to call yeah. him urine because that feels nice for me. I like it. So urine, the bag of pee. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it feels to yeah. me like... You know, and obviously I think that what we are learning throughout all of this and the way he's treating this is that we may never know the truth, the actual truth, which is unfortunate and awful and horrific and and no family deserves that by any stretch. But if we are going to accept pieces of what he is saying to be at least partially true, I don't know why I'm even going that far or giving him that much of a benefit of the doubt. But let's say, for argument's sake, it because it feels to me like he was involved in her death. It feels... Mm-hmm. And if he wasn't, by the way, it's so much more insane. If he had yes. nothing to do with her death, it feels even more insane that he would concoct these stories and these connections, etc., Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the fact that he has admitted to killing Stephanie 
proves that he has it in him to kill somebody, especially when he admits that he got angry. Right. He got and angry. It was like, I was out of control. I got angry. And it's like, okay, so you tried to get sexual with Natalie. She said, no, you got angry. Like you, you know, like right. you've proven you're, if you're angry, you'll snap. Right. Exactly. I mean, because um, I also forgot to point out that um, urine, urine, they left sometime like they were they they were seen leaving at 1 30 at 3 45 a.m urine logged on to his home computer and sent a message to deepak saying thank you what was that about well what's that about yeah what's that about also another thing and i don't know if it's a thing or not the night she disappeared natalie's hotel room door was opened three times with her magnetic key between 2 and 4 a.m. There's no surveillance footage. So the, because, but because they found out about it so late, they don't know if one of the roommates possibly switched keys with her at one point, and it was one of them. But it's like, but then ask them, were you in and out of the room at that point? Because it's like, we'd love to know, because her room key was never found. It's like, did you go to her room? to steal stuff and then there was nothing there so you left like these are information i think we need to have yeah yeah Yeah. to me okay i have two thoughts one if the truth is that she had she was drunk and had some sort of seizure or threw up or what have you she was in a bad way and he panicked i don't believe that most I don't believe that most, I'll say it, and I we're going to get letters, but I'm going to say it. I don't believe that most innocent men would then go, oh my God, I have to dump this body. I think that anyone who was even in a panic, I feel like it would people would be like, if I have nothing to hide, I'm going to call an ambulance. If I have nothing to hide, I'm going to get this woman some sort of medical attention. To me... If this woman has thrown up or or had a seizure or what have you, and he felt his only course of action was to hide it, dispose of the body, call his dad, we have to do something about this. If that is true, I just think that that proves some guilt. Because again, I just don't think that anyone who is is innocent of, of anything would go, oh my gosh, I did absolutely nothing to this woman. I'm completely innocent. I have to hide her body. I don't think that most people's brains go to that point. I agree. I mean, the only thing I could think of right away was if he was like, I can't. If it was like a, she reacted to a drug he put in her drink and his he was like, I can't let her know that I can't let police know that I drugged her. It's like, well, but also you were at a bar. They exactly. gave you a drink. You could have. So then I'm like, okay, so I think he assaulted her. Because then he was like, well, now there's my DNA's all over her. Yes. So I have to get rid of it so that I don't seem like I was any part of it. But then why tell, why, I just don't get the whole, like, blame your friends 
and I then your friends being on your, the story and then your friends blaming you like is it the whole like if we just blame each other eventually people will be like well we don't know who to blame you may as well go because that's what happened <laughs> so I guess they were right it's also interesting to me that in his attempts to make himself sound innocent he mm-hmm. said things like well I just dropped her at the beach by the fishing spot or whatever it was called yeah the fisherman's hut the yep. fisherman's hut like because that doesn't make him sound like a great guy either. Now, and I'm not suggesting that being a being insensitive means you're a murderer. I'm not suggesting that. However, it's odd to me that someone would say, oh, I had nothing to do with this. I just left her for dead in the middle of nowhere. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's odd that that would be, like, to mm-hmm. me, it's, it's weird if he was completely innocent to say that. And it's weird if he was guilty to say that. Like, there's just so many inconsistencies across the board. I also don't don't like just how quickly he came up with a very detailed description of a security guard that most likely doesn't exist. Yeah. That they've never been able to find. He was like, oh, this is exactly it. And his friends were like, oh, yeah, this is the exact guy we saw. Well, exactly. And again... The fact also that there was no security camera footage corroborating what any of them said. Mm-hmm. I think the bottom line here, and listen, I don't know what I don't know what my ultimate theory is, but I, I think I know a few things for sure. And one of them is they're lying. People are lying. There is lies because there's just no way if they're saying, oh, we dropped her off at this time, blah, blah, blah. And then they're saying, well, actually you didn't because there's no security camera footage. And then all of their stories change. That, to me, proves that there's lies. And the fact that then he has gone on to say he's lied to the police so many times proves that there's lies. The fact that he has admitted to killing Stephanie Flores also makes me feel like, okay, well, you're now admitting you admitted to killing her. That proves that you're admitting it doesn't matter. The re- the rationale in that situation is noise to me because it's like you've admitted that you've been able to kill a- to take a life when you were 22 and brutally brutally like, take a life yes. when you were 22. So again, to me everything he's saying and everything he's doing is just and again the the connections with his dad and all of the above, it just feels mm-hmm. to me like this is a game. It feels like he's got a lot of a lot of kind of characteristics of a classic narcissist, somebody who believes he's smarter than everybody, somebody who believes that he can tell you anything that he's gonna get away with it. I just think that they're they're where there's smoke, there's fire, and it feels like, you know, he wouldn't still be toying with people if he didn't see it as some sort of game or that he was smarter than them. And my my final thought is, again, if he is completely uninvolved, the fact that you would then go after the Holloways and say, I have information, send me money, and then take their money and run and enter a poker tournament, like, that is so sick in and of itself. Yes. I don't know. And then the fact that we know because he's admitted that he killed someone on that trip, again, to me, all signs point to this is someone who is capable of murder. This is someone who has no remorse. This is someone who brags about lying and loves to lie. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It just feels like he has to be involved. And this John Ludwig character, whether he's involved or not, is kind of irrelevant at this point. He could have been. He may not have been. You know, we all know of, of serial killer groupies. That is a real thing. Yeah. You know, and ultimately it, it kind of feels like he was not involved. The fact that he was like, he's a celebrity, blah, 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 seems to me like this is somebody who emulated him and then was willing to say whatever to make it seem like he was a part of it when he really wasn't. Oh, 100%. I don't think he was actually part of it. I think he's so impressed by him that he wishes he was part of it. So then it's like, okay, well, I'm going to say that I was part of it so that I get the attention because he's in prison. So now he can't get the attention. So I may as well get the attention. I do. I like how quickly we were like, you know what? I don't trust him. I, I don't know if either of the Calpo brothers did it or were any part of it, but they know more than what they're saying. Oh, yeah. But there is an American citizen, editor-in-chief of Aruba Today newspaper. Her name is Julia Renfro. She assisted Beth when in the early stages of the investigation. She concluded that the body would have turned up by now if she died on the island. And she doubts that three suspects, who were all good students without criminal records, could have pulled off a perfect crime, never caving to the intense ter- interrogations. And it's like, yeah, well, one of them had really big pull with the police, so maybe that's why he doesn't have a record. Um, she also said, I've spoken with all of the suspects. I don't believe any of them had anything to do with it. <laughs> I think that woman has, I don't know, a problem. Uh, No, she's able to have her opinion. I just feel like that opinion is, I just don't understand how someone who can see everything that we see be like, oh, there's no way he could do it. It's like, she must have said that before he murdered someone else openly, right? You would think. Must have. The fact that there were like 10 people that were charged or arrested, but never officially charged That is really uh, grating on me. Also, while I was looking up personal experiences that people had at Carlos and Charlie's to give us, you know, this better understanding, I came across a comment from someone who had been to Aruba that I found kind of possibly fitting. I'm going to slightly paraphrase here, but basically they said like a lot of predators on certain exotic islands Look for young women that are spending their last night on the island. The game plan is to either find the woman who's already intoxicated or find one and get her drunk or drugged. The woman is taken to an isolated location, assaulted and dumped back near her hotel. Then when the victim reports that she has been assaulted, local authorities are then like, okay, well, if we're going to open an investigation, you will miss your flight or next cruise destination, etc., which makes more of the, most of the victims go, okay, well, I guess I'm not saying anything so I can just leave. So it's like, well, there is something to be said for the fact that it was her last night there. Yeah. And she was wearing a specific bracelet that let him know what hotel she was staying at. And also when it has been said that when Urine and Natalie first met, 
he claimed that he was a guest at the hotel. And then later he says she asked to go to his apartment. It's like, but you wouldn't have an apartment if you were a guest at the hotel. So I just don't really get a lot of what was going on. And I mean, I obviously have no idea what officially happened to her because there is no proof whatsoever. Um, I think it's possible that Yorin and the Calpo brothers, who have admitted to drugging and assaulting women that they've picked up at various nightclubs, it's possible that they took her to a location, tried to assault her, she fought back, something went wrong, she died, and then they called Daddy to come fix everything because I feel like he has done something. I think with Yorin, I just... I feel like I get that he's a compulsive liar, but I feel like with the amount of stories he has said, I think somewhere in there is the truth of what really happened. Whether it's one of the stories he told or a piece from each of the stories is what actually happened. So I think he definitely was part of it. I think he called his dad. I think his dad helped him do something and it weighed on his father for years. And then the struggle and the, issue with money also got to him and eventually he has a heart attack the thing that enrages me is the fact that this guy who's guilty in some way in far as far as this case goes we don't know how far but he's done something wrong if nothing else he's extorted money from her family yes and the fact that he just keeps constantly like well i'll tell you where she is and it's like but you stop so then it's like do you really know where she is Because it feels like now you're just dragging it out when you don't really know. But the thought that this person, who I don't even want to say he's a person, but this thing has fathered a child, I just can't even. I mean, I'm hoping for his sake that he never actually gets to be around that child. Because as much as his wife may say he has changed, I refuse to believe it. Um, There was also a quote at one point in my hurriedness. I did not put it down, so I forget what it fully was. But it was basically Euron's father being like, oh, yeah, my son has lied. Like, he had issues in the past with lying. We had to send him to, like, a therapist to deal with some issues. And then it's like, we thought it was all behind us, so I didn't think I had to, like, keep up on what he was doing. And it's like, he was 17 years old. And he was out at casinos and drinking and drugging women. And it's like at 17, it's like if he's obviously been doing it for a while if he was like a seasoned professional. So it's like you weren't watching him at some point. Like I get that a 17 year old, you can't watch them all the time and all of that. But it's just he didn't he obviously knew about at least some of the behavior. Oh, yeah. Because they were at the casino together. And then he was like, hey, call me when you need a ride home. And then he came home, probably around like a curfew time, and then admittedly snuck out that night. And then two nights later, when Beth was there with the police, he had snuck out again because his dad was like, oh, he's in bed. And then found out, oh, no, he's not. Because they didn't live in the same house. He had an apartment attached to their house at 17 years old. This just feels like an insane amount of power to give a 17-year-old, especially one that's a full schmuck. Who has a history of lying and all of these things. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it just feels like, hey, my son's been having some real trouble uh, telling the truth. You know what we need to do? Give him more independence, like his own place to live. It's, uh, again, I know at certain ages you can't police them as much, but being like, hey, you want to go to like a poker tournament with me at this hotel? Like, And it's obvious it's something they did a lot. But again, people are like, he was a gambler. He was a womanizer. So it's like, oh, chip off the old block, maybe? Like, I don't know. But also, ooh, one quick thing before I forget. Yes. I saw a TV interview that Yoren's mom, Anita, did. And the camera just kind of like slowly pans and then zooms into the background. And she has what can only best be described as a shrine to Natalie Holloway in her home. There's like a little angel that's all like a light or something. It's lit up in the background and there's like a candle or something. And then they zoom in and they keep zooming and keep zooming. And then there's a tiny little card that was like an in memoriam of Natalie Holloway. And I assume it's something they gave out in Aruba around the time that she died. But it was like, What's going on there, Anita? Like, for years, Anita was like, she he didn't do this, I don't know, but she's been real quiet since Stephanie died. So, I also fully know that at some point, people are going to be like, you spent, like, 20 minutes bitching about people focusing on the white woman dying instead of, you know, a woman of color, and then you mention the woman of color and then just keep passing, and it's like, I don't know how much more. Uh, we didn't do a full episode on her. Mainly because our, our episodes tend to be unsolved. And this was a very short case. They caught who did it within days, thank God. And I'm glad he's rotting for what he did to her. I can't even imagine. And I now feel bad. I probably should have said trigger warning before I describe very graphically what he said to her or did to her. Maybe we, maybe I, yeah. I'm I'm falling apart at best. Listen, you're do, you're doing great. You're doing great. You're you've got a lot of information. You're trying to get through it quickly. You're doing the you're doing the best you can. I'm trying to keep us on time. I'm trying to keep uh I'm also thinking about notes that I deleted cuz I was so frantic to get it done and I just need to do my best to just keep going and I realize now I meant to double check to verify how to say the name of the victim of our next episode so that I don't butcher it. Well, I've been watching a documentary, so I think I can say it, or I can say it at least how they say it in the documentary I've been watching. Do you, so do you want me to lead you in then? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I offered because now I'm like, what do I say? Well, listen, but before we get to that, thank you so much for all of your research <laughs> yeah. about Natalie Holloway. I think this was fabulous. I think that we all know where all of our feelings lie. It just mm. feels again, you know, like where there's smoke, there's fire. And I hope that, that, you know, I hope upon hopes that whoever killed Natalie, if it's urine, yeah, I'm sticking with it, or anyone else. I hope that that information comes out so that, of course, they can be brought to justice for that crime because it is horrible. And I hope, uh, again, the Holloway family can get some some peace because it really, ugh, what a terrible, 
terrible chain of events. But but well done, as always. You never cease to amaze. Well, you're too kind. I honestly went into this. I knew her name. I knew the basics of, like, she went missing on a trip in a foreign country. It was tropical. And she was last seen with some men. And that was kind of all I knew. So this was a real learning thing to dive in and there are so many things where I'm like I'm really like I'm glad I learned all of this and then at the same time it's like might keep me up at night (laughs) you know like it's a fine line it's a fine line yeah yeah I get that I get that. Listen to all of you listening. If you didn't already know, Christy or myself, when I very rarely take on the researcher shoes in a case, we make very extensive virtual case files, and those can be found on our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. So make sure you check those out for any sort of visuals, continued research, all kinds of very interesting little fun facts, pieces of evidence, etc. get put into those and they're all there for free for your viewing. So thank you again for joining us for this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Rebecca Zahao. Oh, I yeah, think this is going to be good. It's going to be great. And if it's some a case you're not familiar with, let me tell you. It is confounding. I've been watching docs. Woo. Buckle up, buttercups, because your minds are going to be blown. I'm, I'm, I'm cracking my third peach mark, so give me a break. I'm already halfway through my third, so I get it. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Night. Kate Thompson. And I'm Mark David Christensen. And together we host Ah Crap, a Hellboy podcast. The show dedicated to the half demon hero brought forth by writer artist Mike Mignola and published by Dark Horse Comics. Each week we discuss everything Hellboy. Plus his expanded universe with the BPRD, Abe Sapien, Lobster Johnson, and many more. That's Ah Crap, a Hellboy podcast on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.